with his scar tissue limp. Yo, you got some change? He heard the voice from behind him as a man approached. He glanced back at a tall, hunched-over man with very dark skin ten feet behind him. The guy repeated, Yo, change, man? He ignored the beggar, thinking, This is pretty funny. All day he'd been fronting. He was some homeless dude or another, and here comes a real one. Serves me right. Yo, change? He said brusquely, No, I don't have any. Come on, everybody got change. And they fucking hate it. They want to get rid of it. All them coins be heavy and you can't buy shit with it. I be doing you a favor, brother. Come on. Get lost. I ain't ate for two days. Jack glanced back, snapped. Course not, because you spent all your paper on those Calvin Kleins. He glanced at the man's clothes. A dirty, but otherwise nice-looking set of royal blue Adidas workout clothes. Go get a job. Jax turned away and started up the street. Okay, the bum said. You ain't give me any change. Now how's about you give me your motherfucking hands? My. Jax found the legs pulled out from underneath him. He slammed face down onto the sidewalk. Before he could twist around and grab his gun, both wrists were pinned behind his back, and what seemed to be a large pistol was shoved into the nook behind his ear. The fuck you doing, man? Shut up. Hands patted him down and found the hidden pistol. Handcuffs ratcheted on, and Jax was jerked into a sitting position. He found himself looking over an FBI identification card. The first name on it was Frederick. The second was Delray. Oh, man, Jax said, his voice hollow. I don't need this shit. Well, guess what, Sonny? There are a lot more manure coming your way, so you better get used to it. The agent stood up, and a moment later Jax heard... This is Delray. I'm outside. I think I got Boyd's boyfriend down. I just saw him slip some bills to a kid coming out of Lincoln's townhouse. Black kid, maybe thirteen. What was he doing there? A bag? Fuck, it's a device. Probably gas. Boyd must have given it to this piece of crap to sneak inside. Get everybody out and call in at 1033 and get somebody to Geneva now. In Rhyme's lab, the big man sat, cuffed, and legs shackled in a chair, surrounded by Delray, Rhyme, Bell, Sachs, and Salito. He'd been relieved of a pistol, wallet, knife, keys, a cell phone, cigarettes, money. For a half hour, utter chaos had reigned in Lincoln Rhyme's townhouse. Bell and Sachs had literally grabbed Geneva and hustled her out the back door and into Bell's car, which sped off in case there was yet another assailant planning to move on Geneva outside. Everyone else evacuated into the alley. The bomb squad, again in bio-suits, had gone upstairs and x-rayed and then chemically tested the books. No explosives, no poison gas. They were just books. The purpose being, Rhyme assumed, to make them think there was a device in the bag. After they'd evacuated the townhouse, the accomplice would sneak in through the back door or enter with firefighters or police and wait for a chance to kill Geneva. So this was the man Delroy had heard rumors about yesterday, who'd almost gotten to Geneva at the Langston Hughes schoolyard, who'd found out where she lived, and who'd followed her to Rhymes to carry out yet another attempt on her life. He was also the man, Rhyme hoped, who could tell them who'd hired Boyd. The criminalist now looked him over carefully, this large, unsmiling man. He'd traded in his combat jacket for a tattered tan sports coat, probably assuming that they'd spotted him at the school yesterday in the green jacket. 
He blinked and looked down at the floor. "'diminished by his arrest, but not intimidated by the crescent of officers around him. "'Finally he said, "'Look, you don't shh,' Delray said ominously, "'and continued to rifle through the man's wallet, "'as he explained to the team what had happened. "'The agent had been coming to deliver reports "'about the FBI's jewelry district money-laundering investigations "'when he'd seen the teenage boy come out of rhymes.' Saw the beast pass the kid some bills and get his ass up off a bench and leave. The script and the limp matched what we heard before. Looked funny to me, especially when I saw he had a deformed ankle. The agent nodded toward the small thirty-two automatic he'd found in the man's sock. Delray explained that he'd pulled off his own jacket, wrapped it around the files, and slipped them behind some bushes, then smeared some dirt on his running suit to impersonate a homeless man, a role he'd made famous in New York when he was an undercover agent. He then proceeded to collar the man. Let me say something, Boyd's partner began. Delray wagged a huge finger at the man. We'll give you this real clear little nod. We want any words trickling out of your mouth. We all together on that? Aye. All together? He nodded grimly. The FBI agent held up what he'd found in the wallet. Money, a few family pictures, a faded, shabby photograph. What's this? he asked. My tag. The agent held the snapshot closer to rhyme. It was an old, boxy New York City subway. The colorful graffiti on the side read, Jack's 157. Graffiti artist, Sack said, lifting an eyebrow. Pretty good, too. You still go by Jack's? Rhyme asked. Usually. Delray was holding up a picture ID card. You may have been Jacks to the fine folk of the Transit Authority, but it's looking like you're Alonzo Jackson to the rest of the world. Also known by the illuminating moniker Inmate 220934, hailing from the Department of Corrections in the beautiful city of Alden, New York. That's Buffalo, right? Rhyme asked. Boyd's accomplice nodded. The prison connection again. That how you know him? Who? Thompson Boyd. I don't know anybody named Boyd. Delray barked. Then who hired you for the job? I don't know what you're asking. About a job, I swear I don't. He seemed genuinely confused. And all this other stuff, gas or whatever you're saying, I... You were looking for Geneva Settle. You bought a gun and you showed up at her school yesterday. Silito pointed out. Yeah, that's right. He looked mystified at the level of their information. And you showed up here. Delray continued. That's the job we're wagging our tongues about. There's no job. I don't know what you mean, honest. What's the story with the books? Solito asked. Those are just books my daughter read when she was little. They were for her. The agent muttered. Wonderful. But explain to us why you paid somebody to deliver him to... He hesitated and frowned. For once, words seemed to fail Fred Delray. Rhyme asked, "'You're saying?' "'That's right,' Jack sighed. "'Geneva. She's my little girl.'" Chapter 35 "'From the beginning,' Rhyme said. "'Okay. What it is, I got busted six years ago. Went six tonight at Wend.'" the DOC's maximum security prison in Buffalo. For what? 
Delray snapped. The A.R. and murder we heard about? One count armed robbery, one count firearm, one count assault. The twenty-five, twenty-five, the murder? He said firmly, that was not a righteous count. Got knocked down to assault, and I didn't do it in the first place. Never heard that before, Delray muttered. But you did the robbery? Salito asked. A grimace. Yeah. Keep going. Last year I got up to Alden. Minimum security. Work release. I was working and going to school there. Got paroled seven weeks ago. Tell me about the A.R. Okay. A few years back, I was a painter. Working in Harlem. Graffiti? Rhyme asked, nodding at the picture of the subway car. Laughing, Jack said, House painting. You don't make money at graffiti, unless you were Keith Haring and his crowd. And they were just claimers. Anyway, I was getting killed by the debt. See, Venus, Geneva's mother, had righteous problems. First it was blow, then smack, then cookies. You know, crack. And we needed money for bail and lawyers, too. The sorrow in his face seemed real. There were signs she was a troubled soul when we hooked up, but you know nothing like love to make you a blind fool. Anyways, we were going to be kicked out of the apartment, and I didn't have money for Geneva's clothes or school books or even food sometimes. That girl needed a normal life. I thought if I could get together some Benjamins, I'd get Venus into treatment or something, get her straight. And if she wouldn't do it, then I'd take Geneva away from her, give the girl a good home. What happened was his buddy, Joey Stokes, told me about this deal he had going on up in Buffalo. Word was up there was some armored car making fat runs every Saturday, picking up receipts from malls outside of town. A couple of lazy guards, it'd be a milk run. Joey and me left on Saturday morning, thinking we'd be back with fifty, sixty thousand each that night. A sad shake of the head. Oh, man, I don't know what I was doing. Listening to that claiming dude, the minute the driver handed over the money, everything went bad. He had this secret alarm we didn't know about. He hit it, and next thing there were sirens all over the place. We headed south but came to a railroad crossing we hadn't noticed. This freight train was stopped. We turned around and took some roads that weren't on the map and had to go through a field. We got two flats and ran off on foot. The cops caught up with us a half hour later. Joey said, let's fight, and I said no, and called out we were giving up. But Joey got mad and shot me in the leg. The state troopers thought we were shooting at them. That was the attempted murder. Crime don't pay, Delray said, with the intonation, if not the grammar, of the amateur philosopher that he was. We were in a holding cell for a week, ten days, before they let me make a phone call. I couldn't call Venus anyway. Our phone had been shut off. My lawyer was some legal aid kid who didn't do shit for me. I called some friends, but nobody could find Venus or Geneva. They'd been kicked out of our apartment. I wrote letters from prison. They kept coming back. I called everybody I could think of. I wanted to find her so bad. Geneva's mother and me lost a baby a while ago, and then I lost Geneva when I went into the system. I wanted my family back. After I got released, I came here to look for her. Even spent what paper I had on this old computer to see if I could find her on the Internet or something. But I didn't have any luck. All I heard was Venus was dead and Geneva was gone. It's easy to fall through the cracks in Harlem. I couldn't find my aunt either. 
who they stayed with some. Then, yesterday morning, this woman I know from the old days works in Midtown, saw this hubbub at that black museum, some girl getting attacked, and heard her name was Geneva, and she was sixteen and lived in Harlem. She knew I was looking for my girl and called. I got myself hooked up with this claimer hangs out uptown, and he checked out the schools yesterday. Found out she went to Langston Hughes High. I went there to find her. When they spotted you, Stiletto said, by the schoolyard. That's right, I was there. When y'all came after me, I took off. But I went back and found out from this kid where she lived, over in West Harlem by Morningside. I went there today, was going to leave the books, but I saw you put her in a car and take off. He nodded at Bell. The detective frowned. You were pushing a cart. I was fronting that. Yeah, I got a cab and followed y'all here. With a gun, Bell pointed out. He snapped. Somebody tried to hurt my little girl. Hells, yeah, I got myself that piece. I wasn't going to let anything happen to her. You use it? Rhyme asked. The weapon? No. We're going to test it. All I did was pull it out and scare that asshole kid told me where Geneva lived, boy named Kevin, who was speaking bad about my girl. Worst that happened to him was he peed his pants and I pointed it at him, which he deserved. But that's all I did, aside from busting him up some. You can track him down and ask him. What's her name, the woman who called you yesterday? Betty Carlson, she works next to the museum. He nodded at his phone. Her number's on the incoming call as 718. That's the area code. Salido took the man's mobile and stepped into the hallway. What about your family in Chicago? My what? He frowned. Geneva's mother said you moved to Chicago with somebody, married her, Sachs explained. Jacks closed his eyes in disgust. No, no, that was a lie. I never even been to Chicago. Venus must have told her that to poison the girl against me. That woman, why'd I ever fall in love with her? Then Rhyme glanced at Cooper. Call D.O.C. No, no, please, Jack said, his face desperate. They'll violate me back. I can't be outside twenty-five miles of Buffalo. I asked permission to leave the jurisdiction twice, and both times they denied it. I came anyway. Cooper considered this. I can run him through the general DOC database. It'll look routine. The POs won't see it. Rhyme nodded. A moment later, a picture of Alonzo Jackson and his record popped up on the screen. Cooper read it. Confirms what he said. Good behavior, timely discharge. Got himself some college credits. And there's reference to a daughter, Geneva Settle, as next of kin. Thank you for that, Jack said, relieved. What's with the books? I couldn't come up to y'all and just say who I was. I'd get violated back. So I got copies of a bunch of books Geneva read when she was young, so she'd know the note was really from me. What note? Wrote her a note. Put it in one of the books. Cooper rummaged through the bag. In a battered copy of the secret garden was a slip of paper. In careful handwriting were the words, Jen, baby, this is from your father. Please call me. Beneath this message was his phone number. Salido stepped back into the doorway. He nodded. Talk to the Carson woman. Everything he said checks out. Rhyme asked. Geneva's mother was your girlfriend, not wife. That's why Geneva's not Jackson? That's right. 
Where do you live? Bell asked. Got a room in Harlem? 136th. Once I found Geneva, I was going to bring her back to Buffalo till I got permission to come back home. His face grew still, and Rhymes saw what he believed was pure sorrow in his eyes. But I don't think there's much chance of that happening now. Why? Sachs asked. Jax gave a wistful grin. I saw where she lives, that nice place near Morningside. I was happy for her, of course, real happy. She'll have herself two good foster parents taking care of her. Maybe a brother, a sister, which she always wanted, but that didn't work out. After Venus had such a bad time at the clinic. Why did Geneva want to come back with me? She's got the life she deserves, everything I couldn't give her. Rhyme glanced at Sachs with a raised eyebrow. Jax didn't catch it. His story was sounding legit to Rhyme, but he had a thick vein of policeman's skepticism in him. I want to ask you a few questions. Anything. Who's the aunt you mentioned? My father, sister, Lily Hall. She helped raise me. Widowed twice over. She turned ninety this year, August, if she's still with us. Rhyme had no clue about her age or birthday, but that was the name Geneva had given them. She's still alive, yes. A smile. I'm glad about that. I've missed her. I couldn't find her either. Belle said, You told Geneva something about the word sir. What would that have been? I told her, even when she was little, to look people in the eye and always be respectful, but never to call anyone sir or ma'am unless they earned it. The Carolina detective nodded to Rhyme and Sachs. The criminalist asked, "'Who's Charles Singleton?' Jax blinked in surprise. "'How do you know about him?' "'Answer the man, Scurve,' Delray snapped. "'He's my, I don't know, great-great-great-great-grandfather or something.' "'Keep going,' Ryman encouraged. "'Well, he was a slave in Virginia. "'His master freed him and his wife and gave him a farm up north.' Then he volunteered to be in the Civil War, you know, like in that movie, Glory. He came back home after, worked his orchard, and taught at his school, an African free school. Made money selling cider to workers, building boats up the road from his farm. I know he got medals in the war. He even met Abraham Lincoln once in Richmond. Just after the Union troops took it over. Oh, that's what my daddy said. Another sad laugh. Then there was this story he got himself arrested for stealing some gold or payroll or something and went to jail, just like me. You know what happened to him after prison? No, never heard anything about that. So, you believe that I'm Geneva's father? Delray looked at Rhyme, cocked an eyebrow. The criminalist sized the man up. Almost... One last thing. Open your mouth. You're my father? Breathless, nearly dizzy from the news, Geneva Settle felt her heart pounding. She looked him over carefully, her eyes scanning his face, his shoulders, his hands. Her first reaction had been utter disbelief, but she couldn't deny that she recognized him. He still wore the garnet ring that her mother, Venus, had given him for Christmas, 
when they were still celebrating Christmas. The memory she compared this man with, though, was vague, like looking at someone with a bright sun behind them. Despite the driver's license, the picture of her as a baby with him and her mother, the photo of one of his old graffiti drawings, she still would have denied the connection between them to the last, except for a DNA test that Mr. Cooper had run. There was no doubt they were kin. They were alone upstairs, alone, of course, except for Detective Bell, her protective shadow. The rest of the police officers were downstairs, working on the case, still trying to figure out who was behind the jewelry exchange robbery. But Mr. Rhyme and Amelia and all the others, as well as the killer and everything else about the frightening events of the past few days, were for the moment forgotten. The questions that now consumed Geneva were, how had her father gotten here, and why? And, most important, what does this mean for me? A nod at the shopping bag. She picked up the doctor's hoose book. I don't read children's books anymore. It was all she could think of to say. I turned sixteen two months ago. Her point, she guessed, was to remind him of all the birthdays she'd spent alone. I brought you those just so you'd know it was me. I know you're too old for them. What about your other family? she asked coldly. Jack shook his head. They told me what Venus said to you, Jeannie. She was pissed he was using the nickname he'd given her years ago, short for both Geneva and Genius. She was making that up, to turn you against me. No, no, Jeannie, I'd never leave you. I got arrested. Arrested? It's true, miss, Roland Bell said. We've seen his files. He got arrested the day he left you and your mother. He's been in prison ever since, just got out. He then told her a story about a robbery, about being desperate to get some money to make their life better, to help her mother. But the words were tired, exhausted. He was giving her one of the thousands of limp excuses you heard so often in the neighborhood. The crack dealer, the shoplifter, the welfare scammer, the chain snatcher. I did it for you, baby. She looked down at the book in her hand. It was used. Who'd it been for when it was new? Where was the parent who'd bought it originally for his or her child? In jail, washing dishes, driving a Lexus, performing neurosurgery? Had her father stolen it from a used bookstore? I came back for you, Jeannie. I've been desperate to find you, and I was even more desperate when Betty called and told me you'd been attacked. What happened yesterday? Who's after you? Nobody ever told me. I saw something, she said dismissingly, not wanting to give him too much information. Maybe somebody committing a crime. Geneva had no interest in the direction of this conversation. She looked him over and said, more cruelly than she intended, You know that Mom's dead. He nodded. I didn't know it till I came back. Then I heard. But I wasn't surprised. She was a troubled woman. Maybe she's happier now. Geneva didn't think so. And, in any case, no amount of heaven would make up for the unhappiness of dying alone the way she had. Her body shrunken, but her face puffed up like a yellow moon. And it wouldn't make up for the earlier unhappiness, of getting fucked in stairways for a couple rocks of crack while her daughter waited outside the front door. 
Geneva said none of this. He smiled. You've got yourself a real nice place you're staying. It was temporary. I'm not there anymore. You're not? Where you're living? I'm not sure yet. She regretted saying this. It gave him, she realized, a foot in the door. And sure enough, he pushed his way in. I'm going to ask my P.O. again if I can move back here. Knowing I've got family to take care of, he might say it's all right. You don't have a family here. Not anymore. I know you're mad, baby. But I'll make it up to you. I... She flung the book to the floor. Six years and nothing. No word, no call, no letter. Infuriatingly, tears swelled in her eyes. She wiped them with shaking hands. He whispered, And where would I write? Where would I call? I tried steady all those six years to get in touch with you. I'll show you the stack of letters I got all sent back to me in prison. A hundred of them, I guess. I tried everything I could think of. I just couldn't find you. Well, thanks for the apology, you know. If it is an apology, but I think it's time for you to go. No, baby. Let me... Not baby, not genie, not daughter. I'll make it up to you, he repeated. He wiped his eyes. She felt absolutely nothing, seeing his sorrow, or whatever it was. Nothing, that is, except anger. Leave! But, baby, I... No, just go away. Once more... The detective from North Carolina, the expert at guarding people, did his job smoothly and without wavering. He rose and silently but firmly ushered her father into the hallway. He nodded back at the girl, gave her a comforting smile, and closed the door behind him, leaving Geneva to herself. Chapter 36 while the girl and her father had been upstairs, Rhyme and the others had been going over leads to potential jewelry store heists and having no success. The materials that Fred Del Rey had brought them about money laundering schemes involving jewelry were small-time operations, none of them centered in Midtown, and they had no reports from Interpol or local law enforcement agencies containing anything relevant to the case. The criminalist was shaking his head in frustration when his phone rang. Rhyme here? Lincoln, it's Parker! The handwriting expert analyzing the note from Boyd's safe house. Parker Kincaid and Rhyme traded news bites about health and family. Rhyme learned that Kincaid's live-in partner, FBI agent Margaret Lucas, was fine, as were Parker's children, Steffi and Robbie. Sachs sent her greetings, and then Kincaid got down to business. I've been working on your letter non-stop since you sent me the scan. I've got a profile of the writer. Serious handwriting analysis never seeks to determine personality from the way people form their letters. Handwriting itself is relevant only when comparing one document with another, say, when determining forgeries. But that didn't interest Rhyme at the moment. No, what Parker Kincaid was talking about was deducing characteristics of the writer based on the language he used the unusual phrasing that Rhyme had noted earlier. This could be extremely helpful in identifying suspects. Grammatical and syntactical analysis of the Lindbergh baby ransom note, for instance, gave a perfect profile of the kidnapper, Bruno Hauptmann. With the enthusiasm he typically felt for his craft, Kincaid continued, I found some interesting things. You've got the note handy? It's right in front of us. 
a black girl, fifth floor in this window, to October, about 0830. She saw my delivery van when he was parked in an alley behind the jewelry at change, so enough to guess the plans of mine. Kill her. Kincaid said, To start with, he's foreign-born. The awkward syntax and the misspellings tell me that. So does the way he indicates the date, putting the day before the month, and the time is given in the 24-hour clock. That's rare in America. The handwriting expert continued, now, another point. He or she, Rhyme interrupted. I'm leaning toward male, Kincaid countered. Tell you why in a minute. He uses the gendered pronoun he, referring, it seems, to his van. That's typical of several different foreign languages, but what really narrows it down is the two-member nominal phrase in the genitive construction. The what? Rhyme asked. The genitive construction, a way to create the possessive. Your unsub wrote my delivery van at one point. Rhyme scanned the note. Got it. But later he wrote plans of mine. That makes me think your boy's first language is Arabic. Arabic? I'll say it's a 90% likelihood. There's a genitive construction in Arabic called idafa. The possessive is usually formed by saying the car John, meaning the car of John or, in your note, the plans of mine. But the rules of Arabic grammar require that only one word is used for the thing that's possessed. The delivery van won't work in Arabic. It's a two-word phrase, so he can't use idafa. He simply says, my delivery van. The other clue is the misuse of the indefinite article a in a alley. That's common among Arabic speakers. The language doesn't use indefinite articles, only the definite the. Kincaid added, that's true of Welsh, too, but I don't think this guy's from Cardiff. Good, Parker, Sack said. Very subtle, but good. A faint laugh came from the speakerphone. I'll tell you, Amelia, everybody in the business has been doing a lot of boning up on Arabic in the last few years. That's why you think it's a man. How many women and Arab perps you see? Not many. Anything else? Get me some more samples and I'll compare them if you want. We may take you up on that. Rhyme thanked Kincaid, and they disconnected the call. Rhyme shook his head, staring at the evidence boards. He gave a scoffing laugh. What are you thinking, Rhyme? You know what he's up to, don't you? The criminalist asked in an ominous voice. Sachs nodded. He's not going to rob the exchange. He's going to blow it up. Yep. Delray said, Sure, those reports we've had about terrorists going after Israeli targets in the area. Sachs said, The guard across the street from the museum said they get shipments of jewelry every day from Jerusalem. Okay, I'll get the exchange evacuated and swept. She pulled out her cell phone. Rhyme glanced at the evidence board and said to Salito and Cooper, Falafel and yogurt. And a delivery van. Find out if there are any restaurants around the exchange that serve Middle Eastern food, and if so, who makes deliveries and when, and what kind of van they use. Delray shook his head. Half the city eats that stuff. You can get gyros and falafel on every street corner in the city. They... The agent stopped talking as his eyes met Rhymes. Push carts. Citadel said there were a half dozen of them around the museum yesterday. Perfect for surveillance, Rhyme snapped, and what a cover. He delivers supplies to them every day, so nobody pays attention to him. I want to know who supplies the street vendors. Move!
According to the Board of Health, only two companies delivered Middle Eastern food to the pushcarts in the blocks around the jewelry exchange. Ironically, the largest of them was owned by two Jewish brothers with family in Israel and who were active in their temple. They were hardly suspects. The other company didn't own the carts, but sold gyros, kebabs, and falafel, along with the condiments and sodas, as well as the heathen but ever-profitable pork hot dogs, to dozens of carts in Midtown. The operation was based out of a restaurant deli down on Broad Street, whose owners hired a man to make the deliveries around town. With Delray and a dozen other agents and cops surrounding them, these owners became extremely, almost tearfully, cooperative. The name of their delivery man was Bani al-Dahab, and he was a Saudi national, here on a visa long expired. He'd been a professional of some sort in Jeddah, and had worked as an engineer for a time in the U.S., but after he went illegal he'd taken what work he could, cooking occasionally and delivering food to pushcarts and other Middle Eastern restaurants around Manhattan and Brooklyn. The jewelry exchange had been evacuated and swept. No devices were found there and an emergency vehicle locator was out on Al-Dahab's delivery van, which, according to the owners, might be anywhere in the city. The man was free to set his own delivery schedule. It was at moments like this that Rhyme would have paced, had he been able to. Where the hell is he? Is the man driving around with a van full of explosives at the moment? Maybe he'd given up on the jewelry exchange and was going after a secondary target, a synagogue or an El Al Airlines office. Let's get Boyd down here. Put some pressure on him, he snapped. I want to know where the hell this guy is. It was at that moment that Mel Cooper's phone rang. Then, Salito's, followed by Emilia Sachs's. Finally, the main laboratory phone began to chirp. The callers were different, but the message was virtually the same. Rhyme's question about the bomber's whereabouts had just been answered. Only the driver died, which, considering the force of the explosion and the fact that the van was in the intersection of Ninth Avenue and 54th, surrounded by other cars, was pretty miraculous. When the bomb went off, the direction of the blast was mostly upward, through the roof and out the windows, scattering shrapnel and glass and injuring a score of people, but the main damage was confined to the interior of the E-250. The burning van had lurched up on the sidewalk where it slammed into a light post. A crew from the fire station up the street on 8th Avenue got the flames out fast and kept the crowd back. As for the driver, there was no point in even trying to save him. The two largest pieces of his remains were separated by several yards. The bomb squad had cleared the scene, and the main job of the police now was to wait for the medical examiner, tour doctor, and the crime scene crew. "'What's that smell?' the detective from Midtown North asked. The tall, balding officer was creeped out by the stink which he took to be burnt human flesh. The problem was that it smelled good. One of the detectives from the bomb squad laughed at the green-faced detective. "'Giro's.' "'Giro what?' the detective asked, thinking it was short for something like foobar, meaning fucked up beyond all recognition." Luck, the bomb squad cop held up a chunk of burnt meat in his latex-gloved hands. He smelled it. Tasty! The Midtown North detective laughed and didn't reveal how close to puking he was. 
It's lamb. It's... The driver was delivering food. That was his job. The back of the van's filled with meat and falafel and shit like that. Oh. The cop still didn't feel any less nauseous. It was then that a bright red Camaro SS, one hell of a car, skidded to a stop in the middle of the street, just kissing the yellow police tape. Out climbed a stunning redhead who looked over the scene, nodding to the detective. Hey, he said, as the woman detective hooked a headset onto her Motorola and waved to the crime scene bus just pulling up as well, she sniffed the air, taking several deep breaths. She nodded. Haven't run the scene yet, she said into the microphone, but from the smell rhyme I'd say we've got him. It was then that the tall, bald detective swallowed and said, You know, I'll be right back. He jogged to a nearby Starbucks, praying he'd make it to the restroom in time. With Detective Bell at her side, Geneva walked into the laboratory portion of Mr. Rhymes' townhouse downstairs. She glanced at her father, who looked at her with those big puppy-dog eyes of his. Damn it! She looked away. Mr. Rhymes said, "'We've got some news. The man who hired Boyd's dead.' Dead? The jewelry store robber? Things weren't quite what they seemed, Mr. Rhyme said. We were, well, I was wrong. I was thinking whoever it was wanted to rob the jewelry exchange, but no, he wanted to blow it up. Terrorists? she asked. Mr. Rhyme nodded toward a plastic folder that Amelia was holding. Inside was a letter addressed to the New York Times. It said the bombing of the jewelry exchange was yet another step in the holy war against Zionist Israel and its allies. It was the same paper that was used for the note about killing Geneva and the map of West 55th Street. Who is he? she asked, trying to remember a van and a Middle Eastern man in the street outside the museum a week or so ago. She couldn't. An illegal Saudi national, Detective Salido said, Worked for a restaurant downtown. The owners are pretty freaked, of course. They think we think they're a cover for Al-Qaeda or something. He chuckled. Which they might be. We'll keep checking, but they all come up clean. Citizens. Been here for years. Couple kids in the army, even. I will say they're a bunch of very nervous folks at the moment. The most important aspect about the bomber... Amelia went on to say, was that this man, Bani al-Dahab, didn't appear to associate with any suspected terrorists. The women he'd dated recently and co-workers said that they didn't know of any times he'd met with people who might be in a terrorist cell, and his mosque was religiously and politically moderate. Amelia had searched his queen's apartment and found no other evidence or connections to other terrorist cells. His phone records were being checked for possible links to other fundamentalists, though. We'll keep looking over the evidence, Mr. Rhyme said, but we're 99% sure he was working alone. I think it means you're probably safe. He wheeled his chair to the evidence table and looked over some bags of burnt metal and plastic. He said to Mr. Cooper, Add it to the chart, Mel. Explosive was Tovex, and we've got pieces of the receiver— the detonator, the casing, wire, a bit of blasting cap, all contained in a UPS box addressed to the jewelry exchange, attention of the director. Why to go off early? Jax Jackson asked. 
Mr. Rhyme explained that it was very dangerous to use a radio-controlled bomb in the city because there were so many ambient radio waves from construction site detonators, walkie-talkies, and a hundred other sources. Detective Solito added, Or he may have killed himself. He might have heard that Boyd was arrested or that the jewelry exchange was being searched for a bomb. He must have thought it was only a matter of time until he'd been nabbed. Geneva felt uneasy, confused. These people around her were suddenly strangers. The reason they'd come together in the first place no longer existed. As for her father, he was more alien to her than the police. She wanted to be back in her room, in the Harlem basement, with her books and her plans for the future, college, dreams about Florence and Paris. But then she realized Amelia was looking at her closely. The policewoman asked, "'What are you going to do now?' Geneva glanced at her father. "'What would happen?' She had a parent, true, but one who was an ex-con, who couldn't even be here in the city. They'd still probably try to put her in a foster home. Amelia glanced at Lincoln Rhyme. "'Until things get sorted out, why don't we stick with our plan? Have Geneva stay here for a while.' "'Here?' the girl asked. Your father's got to get back to Buffalo and take care of things there. Not that living with him is an option anyway, Geneva thought, but kept this to herself. Excellent idea. This came from Tom. I think that's what we'll do. His voice was firm. You'll stay here. Is that all right with you? Amelia asked Geneva. Geneva wasn't sure why they wanted her to stay. She was initially suspicious. But she constantly had to remind herself that, after living alone for so long, suspicion trailed her like a shadow. She thought of another rule about lives like hers. You take your family how you find them. Sure, she said. This ends Disc 11. The Twelfth Card, Disc 12. Shackled Thompson Boyd was brought into Rhyme's lab, and the two guards deposited him in front of the officers and Rhyme. Geneva was once again upstairs in her room, guarded at the moment by Barb Lynch. The criminalist rarely did this, meeting the perpetrators face to face. For him, a scientist, the only passion in his job was the game itself, the pursuit, not the physical incarnation of the suspect. He had no desire to gloat over the man or woman he'd captured. Excuses and pleas didn't move him. Threats didn't trouble him. Yet now he wanted to make absolutely certain that Geneva Settle was safe. He wanted to assess her attacker himself. His face bandaged and bruised from his confrontation with Sachs at the arrest, Boyd looked around the laboratory. The equipment, the charts on the whiteboards, the wheelchair... No emotion whatsoever, no flicker of surprise or interest, not even when he nodded toward Sachs. It was as if he'd forgotten that she'd brained him repeatedly with a rock. Somebody asked Boyd about it, how did it feel being in an electric chair. He said it didn't feel like anything. It just felt kind of numb. He said that a lot toward the end. He felt numb. He asked... How'd you find me? A couple of things, Rhyme answered. For one, 
You picked the wrong tarot card to leave as evidence. It put me in mind of executions. The hanged man, Boyd said, nodding. Right you are. I never thought about that. Just seemed like kind of a spooky one. To lead you off, you know. Rhyme continued. What got us your name, though, was your habit. Habit? You whistle. I do that. I try not to on the job, but sometimes it slips out. So you'd talk to, yep, some people in Texas. Nodding, Boyd glanced at Rhyme with red, squinting eyes. So you knew about Charlie Tucker? That unfortunate excuse for a human being? Making the last days of my people's time on earth miserable telling him they were going to burn in hell, nonsense talk about Jesus and what not. My people. Sachs asked, Was Bani al-Dahab the only one who hired you? He blinked in surprise. It seemed the first true emotion across his face. How? He fell silent. The bomb went off early, or he killed himself. A shake of the head. No, he wasn't any suicide bomber. It would have gone off by accident. Fellow was careless. Too hot-headed, you know. Didn't do things by the book. He probably armed it too early. How'd you meet him? He called me. Got my name from somebody in prison, Nation of Islam connection. So that was it. Rhyme had wondered how a Texas prison guard had hooked up with Islamic terrorists. They're crazy, Boyd said. But they have money, those Arab people. And John Earl Wilson? He was your bomb maker? Johnny, yes, sir, he shook his head. You know about him, too? You people are good, I must say. Where is he? That I don't know. We left messages from payphones to a voicemail box and met in public. Never traded more than a dozen words. The FBI will be talking to you about Al-Dahab and the bombing. What we want to know about is Geneva. Is there anybody else who'd want to hurt her? Boyd shook his head. From what he told me, Al-Dahab was working alone. I suspect he talked to people over in the Middle East some, but nobody here... He didn't trust anyone. The Texas drawl came and went, as if he'd been working on losing it. Sack said ominously, If you're lying, if something happens to her, we can make sure the rest of your life's totally miserable. How? Boyd asked, genuinely curious, it seemed. You killed the librarian, Dr. Barry. You attacked and tried to kill police officers. You could get consecutive lifetimes, and were looking into the death of a girl yesterday on Canal Street. Somebody pushed her in front of a bus near where you were escaping from Elizabeth Street. We're running your picture past witnesses. You'll go away forever. A shrug. Doesn't hardly matter. You don't care? Sachs asked. I know you people don't understand me. I don't blame you. But see, I don't care about prison. I don't care about anything. Y'all can't really touch me. I'm dead already. Killing somebody doesn't matter to me. Saving a life doesn't matter. 
He glanced at Amelia Sachs, who was staring at him. Boyd said, I see that look. You're wondering what kind of monster is this fella. Well, fact is, you all made me who I am. We did? she asked. Oh, yes, ma'am. You know my profession. Executions control officer, Rhyme said. Yes, sir. Now, something I'll tell you about that line of work. You can find the names of every human legally executed in these United States, which is a lot. And you can find the names of all the governors who waited up till midnight or whenever to commute them if the inclination was there. You can find the names of all the victims the condemned murdered, and much of the time the names of their next of kin. But do you know the one name you won't find? He looked at the officers around him. Us people who push the button. The executioners. We're forgotten. Everybody thinks about how capital punishment affects the families of the condemned, or society, or the victims' families. Not to mention the man or woman gets put down like a dog in the process. But nobody ever spends a drop of sweat on us executioners. Nobody ever stops and thinks what happens to us. Day after day, living with our people, men, women too, of course, who are going to die getting to know them, talking to them about everything under the sun, hearing a black man ask how come is it the white guy who did the exact same crime gets off with life, or maybe even less, but he himself is going to die. The Mexican swearing he didn't rape and kill that girl. He was just buying beer at 7-Eleven, and the police come up, and next he knows he's on death row. And a year after he's in the ground, they do a DNA test and find out they did have the wrong man, and he was innocent all along. Of course, even the guilty ones are human beings, too. Living with all of them day after day, being decent to them because they're decent to you, getting to know them, and then... Then you kill them. You, all by yourself, with your own hands, pushing the button, throwing the switch. It changes you. You know what they say? You heard it. Dead man walking? It's supposed to mean the prisoner. But it's really us. The executioners. We're the dead men. Sax muttered, but your girlfriend? How could you shoot her? He fell silent. For the first time a darkness clouded his face. I pondered firing that shot. I'd hoped maybe I'd have this feeling that I shouldn't do it, that she meant too much to me. I'd let her be and run, just take my chances. But, he shook his head, didn't happen. I looked at her, and all I felt was numb. And I knew that it'd make sense to shoot her. And if the children had been home, and not her, Sachs gasped, you'd have shot one of them to escape? He considered this for a moment. Well, ma'am, I guess we know that would have worked, wouldn't it? You would have stopped to save one of the girls instead of coming after me. Like my daddy told me, it's only a question of where you put the decimal point.
the darkness seemed to lift from his face as if he'd finally received some answer or come to some conclusion in a debate that had been troubling him for a long time. The hanged man. The card often foretells a surrendering to experience, ending a struggle, accepting what is. He glanced at Rhyme. Now, you don't mind... I think it's time for me to get back home. Home? He looked at them curiously. Jail. As if, what else would he possibly mean? Father and daughter got off the sea train at 135th Street and started east toward Langston Hughes High. She hadn't wanted him to come, but he'd insisted on looking after her which Mr. Rhyme and Detective Bell had insisted on, too. Besides, she reflected, he'd be back in Buffalo by tomorrow, and she supposed she could tolerate an hour or two with him. He nodded back at the subway. Used to love to ride on seat trains. Paint stuck real nice. I knew a lot of people that see it. Did an end-to-end -end in 1976. It was the bicentennial that year. Those tall ships were in town. My piece was of one of those boats, along with the Statue of Liberty. He laughed. The MTA didn't scrub that car for at least a week, I heard. Maybe they were just busy, but I like to think somebody liked what I painted and kept it up for longer than normal. Geneva grunted. She was thinking that she had a story to tell him. A block away she could see the construction scaffolding in front of the same building she'd been working on when she'd been fired. How'd her father like to know that her job had been scrubbing graffiti off the redeveloped buildings? Maybe she'd even erased some of his. Tempted to tell him. But she didn't. At the first working payphone they found on Frederick Douglass Boulevard, Geneva stopped, fished for some change. Her father offered her his cell phone. That's okay. Take it. She ignored him, dropped the coins in, and called Lakeisha while her father pocketed his cell and wandered to the curb, looking around the neighborhood like a boy in front of the candy section in a bodega. She turned away as her friend answered, Lo, it's all over with Keish. She explained about the jewelry exchange, the bombing. That what was going on? Damn! A terrorist? That's some scary shit, but you okay? I'm down, really. Geneva heard another voice, a male one, saying something to her friend who put her hand over the receiver for a moment. Their muted exchange seemed heated. You there, Keish? Yeah. Who's that? Nobody. Where you at? You not in that basement crib no more, right? I'm still where I told you with that policeman and his girlfriend, the one in the wheelchair. You there now? No, I'm uptown, going to school. Now? Pick up my homework. The girl paused, then, Listen, I'm a hook up with you at school. Want to see you, girl, when you be there. Geneva glanced at her father, nearby, hands in his pockets, still surveying the street. She decided she didn't want to mention him to Keisha, or anybody else just yet. Let's make it tomorrow, Keish. I don't have any time now. Damn, girl! Really, better tomorrow. Whatever. Geneva heard the click of the disconnect. Yet she stayed where she was for some moments, delaying going back to her father. Finally, she joined him, and they continued toward the school. 
You know what was up there three or four blocks? He asked, pointing north. Strivers Row. You ever seen it? No, she muttered. I'll take you up there sometime. A hundred years ago, this land developer fellow named King. He built these three big apartments and tons of townhouses, hired three of the best architects in the country, and told them to go to work. Beautiful places. King Model Homes was the real name, but they were so expensive and so nice. This is the story. The place was called Strivers Row, because you had to strive to live there. W.C. Handy lived there for a time. You know him? Father of the Blues. Most righteous musician ever lived. I did a piece up that way one time. I ever tell you about that? Took me 30 cans to do. Wasn't a throw-up. I spent two days on it. Did a picture of W.C. himself, photographer from the Times, shot it and put it in the paper. He nodded north. It was there for... She stopped fast. Her hands slapped her hips. Enough! Jeannie, just stop it. I don't want to hear this. You, I don't care about any of what you're telling me. You're mad at me, honey. Who wouldn't be after everything? Look, I made a mistake, he said, his voice cracking. That was the past. I'm different now. Everything's going to be different. I'll never put anybody ahead of you again like I did when I was with your moms. You're the one I should have been trying to save, and not by taking that trip to Buffalo. No, you don't get it. It's not about what you did. It's your whole goddamn world I don't want any part of. I don't care about Strivers, whatever it is. I don't care about the Apollo or the Cotton Club or the Harlem Renaissance. I don't like Harlem. I hate it here. It's guns and crack and rapes and people getting fiended for a cheap-ass plated bling and drugstore hoops. It's girls. All they care about is extensions and braids and... And Wall Street's got insider traders and New Jersey's got the mob and Westchester's got trailer parks, he replied. She hardly heard him. It's boys. All they care about is getting girls in bed. It's ignorant people who don't care how they talk. It's what's wrong with AAVE. She blinked. How do you know about that? He himself had never talked ghetto. His own father had made sure he'd worked hard in school, at least until he dropped out to start the career of defacing city property. But most people who lived here didn't know that the official name for what they spoke was African-American vernacular English. When I was inside... He explained, I got my high school diploma and a year of college. She said nothing. I mostly studied reading and words. Maybe it won't help me get a job, but it's what drew me. I always liked books and things, you know that. I'm the one who had you reading from Jump. I studied Standard, but I studied Vernacular, too. And I don't see anything wrong with it. You don't speak it, she pointed out sharply. I didn't grow up speaking it. I didn't grow up speaking French or Mandingo, either. I'm sick of hearing people say, let me ax you a question. Her father shrugged. Ax is just an old English version of ask. Royalty used to say it. There are Bible translations that talk about axing God for mercy. It's not a black thing, like people say. The combination of saying S and K next to each other is hard to pronounce. It's easier to transpose. And ain't... Been in the English language since Shakespeare's day. She laughed. Tried getting a job talking vernacular. Well, what if somebody from France or Russia is trying for that same job? Don't you think the boss would give them a chance, listen to them, see if they'd work hard, were smart, even if they spoke different English? 
Maybe the problem's that the boss is using somebody's language as a reason not to hire him. He laughed. People in New York damn well better be able to speak some Spanish and Chinese in the next few years. Why not vernacular? His logic infuriated her even more. I like our language, Jeannie. It sounds natural to me. Makes me feel at home. Look, you've got every right to be mad at me for what I did. But not for who I am or what we came out of. This is home. And you know what you do with your home, don't you? You change what ought to be changed and learn to be proud of what you can't. Geneva jammed her eyes closed and lifted her hands to her face. The years and years she dreamed of a parent, not even the luxury of two, but just one person to be there when she came home in the afternoons, to look over her homework, to wake her up in the morning. And when that wasn't going to happen, when she'd finally managed to shore up her life on her own and start working her way out of this godforsaken place, here comes the past, to yoke and choke her and drag her back. But that's not what I want, she whispered. I want something more than this mess. She waved her hand around the streets. Oh, Geneva, I understand that. All I'm hoping for is maybe we have a couple of nice years here for you off into the world. Give me a chance to make up for what we did to you, your mother and me. You deserve the world, but, honey, I gotta say, can you name me one place that's perfect, where all the streets are paved with gold, where everybody loves their neighbors? He laughed and slipped into vernacular. You say it a mess here? Well, damn straight. But where ain't it a mess one way or the other, baby? Where ain't it? He put his arm around her. She stiffened, but she didn't otherwise resist. They started for the school. Lakeisha Scott sat on the bench in Marcus Garvey Park, where she'd been for the past half hour after she'd come back from her counter job in the restaurant downtown. She lit another merit, thinking, there are things we do cause we want to and things we do cause we gotta. Survival things. And what she was about now was one of those had-to things. Why the fuck didn't Geneva say that after all this shit, she was booking on out of town and never coming back. She was going to Detroit or Bama. Sorry, Keish, we can't see each other anymore. I'm talking forever. Bye. That way the whole fucking problem would be gone for good. Why, why, why? And it was worse than that. Jen had to go and tell her exactly where she was going to be for the next few hours. Keish had no excuse to miss the girl now. Oh, she'd kept up her ghetto patter when they'd been talking a while ago so her friend wouldn't hop to something going down. But now, sitting alone, she sank into sorrow. Man, I'm feeling bad. But ain't got no choice here. Things we do cause we gotta. Come on, Keisha said to herself. Gotta get over. Let's go. Bring it on. She crushed out her cigarette and left the park. Headed west, then north on Malcolm X, past church after church. They were everywhere. Mount Morris Ascension, Bethelite Community, Ephesus Adventist Church, Baptist, plenty of those. A mosque or two, a synagogue, and the stores and shops. Papaya King, a botanica, a tuxedo rental shop, a check-cashing outlet. 
She passed a gypsy cab garage, the owner sitting outside, holding his taped-together dispatch radio, the long cord disappearing into the unlit office. He smiled at her pleasantly. How Lakeisha envied them. The reverends in the grimy storefronts under the neon crosses, the carefree men slipping hot dogs into the steamed buns, the fat man on the cheap chair with his cigarette and his fucked-up microphone. They ain't betraying nobody, she thought. They ain't betraying the person was one of their best friends for years. Snapping her gum, gripping her purse strap hard with her pudgy fingers tipped in black and yellow nails, ignoring three Dominican boys. Psst! She heard booty. She heard bitch. Psst! Keish reached into her purse and gripped her spring knife. She nearly flicked it open just to see him flinch. She glared but left the long, sharp blade where it was, deciding she'd have a world of trouble when she got to the school. Let it go for now. Psst! She moved on, her nervous hands opening a pack of gum. Shoving two fruity pieces into her mouth, Lakeisha struggled to find her angry heart. Get yourself mad, girl. Think of everything Geneva done to piss you off. Think of everything she'd be that you ain't and never gonna be. The fact the girl was so smart it hurt that she came to school every single fucking day, that she kept her skinny little white girl figure without looking like some AIDS hoe, that she managed to keep her legs together and told other girls to do the same like some prissy moms, acting like she better than us all. But she wasn't. Geneva Settle was just another kid from a mommy-got-a-habit-daddy-done-run-off family. She one of us. Get mad at the fact that she'd look you in the eye and say, You can do it, girl, you can do it. You can do it, you can get out of here. You got the world ahead of you. Well, no, bitch. Sometimes you just can't do it. Sometimes it's just too fucking much to bear. You need help to get over. You need somebody with Benjamins, somebody watching your back. And for a moment, the anger at Geneva boiled up inside her and she gripped the purse strap even tighter. But she couldn't hold it. The anger vanished, blew away like it was nothing more than the light brown baby powder she'd sprinkle on her twin cousin's buns when she changed their diapers. As Lakeisha walked in a daze past Lennox Terrace toward their school, where Geneva Settle would soon be, she realized that she couldn't rely on anger or excuses. All she could rely on was survival. Sometimes you got to look out for yourself and take the hand somebody offers you. Things we do, cause we gotta. Chapter 37 At school, Geneva collected her homework, and wouldn't you know it, her next language arts assignment was to report on Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, the 1928 book that was the first best-selling novel by a black author. Can I have E.E. E. Cummings? she asked, or John Cheever? It's our African-American sequence, Jan, her language arts teacher pointed out, smiling. Then Frank Yerby, she bargained, or Octavia Butler. Ah, they're wonderful authors, Jan, her teacher said, but they don't write about Harlem. That's what we're studying in this segment. But I gave you McKay because I thought you'd like him. He's one of the most controversial writers to come out of the Renaissance. McKay took a lot of flack because he looked at the underside of Harlem. He wrote about the primitive aspects of the place. That upset Du Bois and a lot of other thinkers at the time. It's right up your alley. 
Maybe her father could help her interpret, she thought cynically, since he loved the neighborhood and its patois so much. Try it, the man offered. You might like it. Oh, no, I won't, Geneva thought. Outside the school, she joined her father. They came to the bus stop, and both closed their eyes as a swirl of chill, dusty air swept around them. They'd reached a détente of sorts, and she'd agreed to let him take her to a Jamaican restaurant that he'd been dreaming about for the past six years. "'Is it even still there?' she asked coolly. "'Dunno, but we'll find something. Be an adventure.' "'I don't have much time,' she shivered in the cold. "'Where's that bus?' he asked. Geneva looked across the street and frowned. "'Oh, no, there was Lakeisha.' This was so her. She hadn't even listened to what Geneva had said and had come here anyway. Keish waved. Who's that? her father asked. My girlfriend. Lakeisha glanced uncertainly toward her father and then gestured for Jen to cross the street. What's wrong? The girl's face was smiling, but it was clear she had something on her mind. Maybe she was wondering what Geneva was doing with an older man. Wait here she told her father, and she started toward Lakeisha, who blinked and seemed to take a deep breath. She opened her purse and reached inside. What's the 411 on this? Geneva wondered. She crossed the street and paused at the curb. Keisha hesitated, then stepped forward. Jen, she said, her eyes going dark. Geneva frowned. Girl, what's... Keish stopped fast as a car pulled to the curb past Geneva, who blinked in surprise. Behind the wheel was the school counselor, Mrs. Barton. The woman gestured the student to the car. Geneva hesitated, told Keish to wait a minute, and joined the counselor. Hey, Geneva, I just missed you inside. Hi. The girl was cautious, not sure what the woman knew and didn't about her parents. Mr. Rhymes' assistant told me that they caught the man who tried to hurt you, and your parents finally got back. My father, she pointed. That's him right there. The counselor regarded the stocky man in the shabby T-shirt and jacket. And everything's okay? Out of earshot, Lakeisha watched them with a frown. Her expression was even more troubled than before. She'd seemed cheerful on the phone. But now that Geneva thought about it, maybe she'd been fronting. And who was that guy she'd been talking to? Nobody? I don't think so. Geneva? Mrs. Barton asked. You all right? She looked back at the counselor. Sorry. Yeah, it's fine. The woman again studied her father closely and then turned her brown eyes on the girl, who looked away. Is there anything you want to tell me? Um. What's the real story here? I... It was one of those situations when the truth was going to come out no matter what. Okay, look, Mrs. Barton, I'm sorry. I wasn't completely honest. My father's not a professor. He's been in prison, but he got released. So where have you been living? On my own. With no trace of judgment in her eyes, the woman nodded. Your mother? Dead. She frowned. I'm sorry. And is he going to take custody? We haven't really talked about it. Anything he does, he has to get it worked out with the court or something. She said this to buy time. Geneva had half-formulated a plan for her father to come back, technically take custody, but she'd continue to live on her own. 
For a few days I'm going to stay with Mr. Rhyme and Amelia at their place. The woman looked once more at her father, who was offering a faint smile toward the pair. This is pretty unusual, Geneva said defiantly. I won't go into a foster home. I won't lose everything I've been working for. I'll run away. I'll... Whoa, slow up, the counselor smiled. I don't think we need to make an issue of anything now. You've been through enough. We'll talk about it in a few days. Where are you going now? To Mr. Rhymes. I'll give you a ride. Geneva jested her father over. The man ambled up to the car, and the girl introduced them. Nice to meet you, ma'am, and thanks for looking out for Geneva. Come on, get in. Geneva looked across the street. Quiche was still there. She shouted, I gotta go. I'll call you. She mimicked, holding a phone to her ear. Lakeisha nodded uncertainly, withdrew her hand from her purse. Geneva climbed into the back seat behind her father, a glance through the back window at Keisha's grim face. Then Mrs. Barton pulled away from the curb, and her father started up with another ridiculous history lesson, rambling on and on. You know, I did a piece once about the Collier brothers. Homer and Langley lived at 128th and 5th. They were recluses and the weirdest men ever lived. They were terrified of crime and harm and barricaded themselves in their apartment, set up booby traps, never threw a single thing out. One of them got crushed under a pile of newspapers he'd stacked up. When they died, police had to cart over a hundred tons of trash out of their place. He asked, You ever hear about them? The counselor said she thought she had. No, Geneva replied, and thought, ask me if I care. Lincoln Rhyme was directing Mel Cooper to organize the evidence that they'd collected from the bombing scene, in between reviewing some of the evidence analysis reports that had returned. A federal team under Delray's direction had tracked down John Earl Wilson, the man whose fingerprints were on the transistor radio bomb in Boyd's safe house. He'd been collared, and a couple of agents were going to bring him over to Rhymes for interrogation to shore up the case against Thompson Boyd. It was then that Bell's phone rang. He answered, Bell here. Luis, what's up? He cocked his head to listen. Luis, this would be Martinez, who had been tailing Geneva and her father on foot since they'd left Rhymes to go to Langston Hughes. They were convinced that Jax, Alonzo Jackson, was her father and no threat to the girl, and that the terrorist had been working alone. But that didn't mean Bell and Rhyme were going to let Geneva go anywhere in the immediate future without protection. But something was wrong. Rhyme could read it in Bell's eyes. The detective said to Cooper, we need a DMV check fast. He jotted a tag number on a post-it note, then hung up, handed the slip of paper to the CS tech. What's happening? Sachs asked. Geneva and her father were at the bus stop near the school. A car pulled up. They got inside. Luis wasn't expecting that and couldn't get across the street fast enough to stop them. Car? Who was driving? Heavy-set black woman? The way he described her sounds like it might have been that counselor, Barton. Nothing to worry about, necessarily, Rhyme reflected. Maybe the woman just saw them at the bus stop and offered them a ride. Information from the DMV flickered over his screen. What do we have, Mel? Rhyme asked. Cooper squinted as he read. He typed some more. He looked up, eyes wide through his thick glasses. A problem? We have a problem. 
Mrs. Barton was heading into south-central Harlem, moving slowly through the early evening traffic. She slowed as they drove past yet another real estate redevelopment project. Geneva's father shook his head. Look at all this. He nodded at the billboard. Developers, banks, architects. A sour laugh. Betcha there's not a single black person running any of them. Lame, Geneva thought. She wanted to tune him out, whining about the past. The counselor glanced at the site and shrugged. You see that a lot around here. She braked and turned down an alley between one of the old buildings being gutted and a deep excavation site. In response to her father's questioning glance, Mrs. Barton said, Shortcut. But her father looked around. Shortcut? Just to miss some of the southbound traffic. He looked again, squinted, then spat out, Bullshit! Dad, Geneva cried, I know this block. Road's closed off up ahead. They're tearing down some old factory. No, Mrs. Barton said. I just came this way, and... But her father grabbed the parking brake and pulled up as hard as he could, then spun the wheel to the left. The car skidded into the brick wall with the wrenching sound of metal and plastic grinding into stone. Grabbing the counselor's arm, the man shouted, She's with them, baby, trying to hurt you. Get out. Run. Dad, no, you're crazy. You can't but the confirmation came a moment later as a pistol appeared from the woman's pocket. She aimed it at her father's chest and pulled the trigger. He blinked in shock and jerked back, gripping the wound. Oh, oh, my, he whispered. Geneva leaped back as the woman turned the silver gun toward her. Just as it fired, her father swung his fist into the woman's jaw and stunned her. Flame and bits of gunpowder peppered Geneva's face, but the bullet missed. It blew the car's rear window into a thousand tiny cubes. Run, baby, her father muttered and slumped against the dashboard. Get her down, cut her, cut the bitch. Sobbing, Geneva crawled out the shattered back window and fell to the ground. She struggled to her feet and started sprinting down the ramp into the murky demolition site. Chapter 38 Alina Frazier, the woman fronting as the counselor Patricia Barton, didn't have the cool of her partner. Thompson Boyd was ice itself. He never got rattled, but Alina had always been emotional. She was furious, cursing, as she scrabbled over the body of Geneva's father and stumbled out into the alley, looking left and right for the girl. Furious that Boyd was in jail, furious that the girl was getting away. Breathing deeply, looking up and down the deserted alley, stalking back and forth, where could the little bitch... A flash of gray to her right. Geneva was crawling out from behind a scabby blue dumpster and disappearing deeper into the job site. The woman started off in pursuit, panting. She was large, yes, but also very strong, and she moved quickly. You could let prison soften you, or you could let prison turn you into stone. She'd chosen the second. Frazier had been a gangster in the early nineties, the leader of a girl wolf pack roaming Times Square in the Upper East Side, where tourists and residents, who'd be suspicious of a cluster of teen boys, didn't think anything of a handful of boisterous sisters toting Daffy Dan and Macy's shopping bags. That is, until the knives or guns appeared and the rich bitches lost their cash and jewelry. After stints in juvie, she'd gone down big and done time for manslaughter. It should have been murder, but the kid prosecutor had fucked up. 
After release, she'd returned to New York. Here, she'd met Boyd through the guy she was living with, and when Fraser broke up with the claimer, Boyd had called her. At first, she thought it was just one of those white guy hot for a black girl things. But when she'd taken up his invitation for coffee, he hadn't come on to her at all. He'd just looked her over with those weird dead eyes of his and said that it'd be helpful to have a woman work with him on some jobs. Was she interested? Jobs, she'd asked, thinking drugs, thinking guns, thinking perped TVs. But he'd explained in a whisper what his line of work was. She'd blinked. Then he'd added it could net her upwards of fifty thousand bucks for a few days' work. A brief pause, then a grin. Damn straight. For the Geneva Settle job, though, they were making five times that. This turned out to be a fair price, since it was the hardest kill they'd ever worked. After the hit at the museum yesterday morning hadn't worked out, Boyd had called her and asked for her help, even offering an extra fifty thousand dollars if she killed the girl herself. Fraser, always the smartest in her crews, had come up with the idea of fronting as the counselor and had a fake Board of Education ID made up. She'd started calling public schools in Harlem, asking to speak to any of Geneva Settle's teachers, and had received a dozen variations on, She's not enrolled here, sorry. Until Langston Hughes High, where some office worker had said that, Yes, this was her school. Frazier had then simply put on a cheap business suit, dangled the ID over her imposing chest, and strolled into the high school like she owned the place. There she learned about the girl's mysterious parents, the apartment on 118th Street, and, from that detective Bell and the other cops, about the Central Park West townhouse and who was guarding Geneva. She'd fed all this information to Boyd to help in planning the kill. She staked out the girl's apartment near Morningside, until it got too risky because of Geneva's bodyguards. She'd been caught in the act this afternoon, when a squad car pulled her over near the place, but it turned out the cops hadn't been looking for her. Fraser had talked a guard at Langston Hughes into giving her the security video of the schoolyard, and with that prop she managed to get inside the crippled man's townhouse, where she learned yet more information about the girl. But then Boyd had been nailed— He'd told her all along how good the police were, and now it was up to Alina Fraser to finish the job if she wanted the rest of the fee, $125,000. Gasping for breath, the big woman now paused thirty feet down a ramp that led to the foundation level of the excavation site. Squinting against the blast of low sun from the west, trying to see where the little bitch had gone, damn, girl, show yourself. Then, movement again. Geneva was making her way to the far side of the deserted job site, crawling fast over the ground, using cement mixers, bobcats, and piles of beams and supplies for cover. The girl disappeared behind an oil drum. Stepping into the shadows for a better view, Fraser aimed at the middle of the drum and fired, hitting the metal with a loud ring. It seemed to her that dirt danced up into the air just past the container. Had it slammed through the girl, too? But no, she was up and moving fast to a low wall of rubble, brick, stone, pipes. Just as she vaulted it, Fraser fired again. The girl tumbled over the other side of the wall with a shrill scream. Something puffed into the air. Dirt and stone dust? Or blood? Had Fraser hit the girl? She was a good shot. She and her ex-boyfriend, a gunrunner in Newark, had spent hours picking off rats in abandoned buildings on the outskirts of town, trying out his products. 
She thought she'd been on the mark now, but she couldn't wait long to find out. People would have heard the gunshots. Some would ignore them, sure, and some would think the workers were still on the job with heavy equipment. But at least one or two good citizens might be calling 911 just about now. Well, go see. She started slowly down the truck ramp, making sure she didn't fall. The incline was very steep. But then a car horn began blaring from the alley behind and above her. It was coming from her car. Fuck, she thought angrily. The girl's father was still alive. Frazier hesitated, then decided, time to get the hell out of here. Finish Dad off. Geneva was probably hit and wouldn't survive long, but even if she wasn't wounded, Fraser would track her down later. There'd be plenty of opportunities. Fucking horn! It seemed louder than the gunshot and had to be attracting attention. Worse, it would cover up the sound of any approaching sirens. Fraser climbed to the street level up the dirt ramp, gasping from the effort, but as she got to the car she frowned, seeing that it was empty. Geneva's father wasn't in the driver's seat after all. A trail of blood led to a nearby alleyway where his body lay. Fraser glanced inside her car. That's what had happened. Before he'd crawled away, he'd pulled out the car's jack and wedged it against the horn panel on the steering wheel. Furious, Fraser yanked it away. The piercing sound stopped. She tossed the jack into the back seat and glanced at the man. Was he dead? Well, if not, he soon would be. She walked toward him, her gun at her side. Then she paused frowning. How had a man as badly wounded as this poor motherfucker opened the trunk, unscrewed the jack, lugged it to the front seat, and rigged it against the wheel? Fraser started to look around, and saw a blur to her right, heard the whoosh of air as the tire iron swept down and crashed into her wrist, sending the gun flying and shooting a breathtaking jolt of pain through her body. The big woman screamed and dropped to her knees, lunging for the gun with her left hand. Just as she grabbed it, Geneva swung the iron again and caught the woman in the shoulder with a solid clonk. Frazier rolled to the ground, the gun sliding out of her reach. Blinded by the pain and the rage, the woman lunged and tackled the girl before she could swing the rod again. Geneva went down hard, the breath knocked out of her. The woman turned toward where the pistol lay, but choking and gasping, Geneva crawled forward, grabbed her right arm, and bit Fraser's shattered wrist. The pain that could be no worse rose like a shriek through her. Fraser swung her good fist into the girl's face and connected with her jaw. Geneva gave a cry and blinked tears as she rolled helpless onto her back. Fraser climbed unsteadily to her feet, cradling her bloody, broken wrist, and kicked the girl in the belly. The teenager began to retch. Standing unsteadily, Frazier looked for the gun, which was ten feet away. Don't need it. Don't want it. The tire iron would do just fine. Seething with anger, she picked it up and started forward. She looked down at the girl with undiluted hate and lifted the metal rod above her head. Geneva cringed and covered her face with her hands. Then a voice from behind the big woman shouted, No! Fraser turned to see that red-headed policewoman from the crippled man's apartment walking slowly forward, her large automatic pistol held in both hands. Alina Fraser looked down at the revolver nearby. "'I'd like the excuse,' the policewoman said. "'I really would.' Fraser slumped, tossed the tire iron aside, and, feeling faint, dropped into a sitting position. She cradled her shattered hand." The cop moved close and kicked the pistol and tire iron away as Geneva rose to her feet and staggered toward a duo of medics who were running forward. The girl directed them toward her father. Tears of pain in her eyes, Fraser demanded, I need a doctor. You'll have to wait in line, 
the policewoman muttered, and slipped a plastic restraint around her wrists with what, under the circumstances, Fraser decided, was really a pretty gentle touch. He's in stable condition, Lon Salito announced. He'd fielded the phone call from an officer on duty at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. He didn't know what that means, but there you have it. Rhyme nodded at this news about Jax Jackson. Whatever stable meant, at least the man was alive, for which Rhyme was immensely grateful, for Geneva's sake. The girl herself had been treated for contusions and abrasions and released. It had been a photo finish to save her from Boyd's accomplice. Mel Cooper had run the tags on the car that the girl and her father had gotten into and found it registered to someone named Alina Fraser. A fast check of NCIC and state databases revealed that she had a record, a manslaughter charge in Ohio, and two assaults with deadly weapons in New York, as well as a slew of sealed juvie offenses. Salido had put out an emergency vehicle locator, which alerted all law enforcers in the area to look for Frazier Sudan. A traffic enforcement cop had radioed a short time later that the vehicle had been seen near a demolition site in South Harlem. There'd also been a report of shots fired in the vicinity. At Rhymes' townhouse, Emilia Sachs jumped into her Camaro and sped to the scene, where she found Fraser about to beat Geneva to death. Fraser had been interrogated, but was no more cooperative than her accomplice. Rhyme guessed that one had to think long and hard about betraying Thompson Boyd, especially in jail, given the long reach of his prison connections. Was Geneva finally safe or not? Most likely she was. Two killers under wraps, and the main actor blown to pieces. Sachs had searched Alina Fraser's apartment and found nothing except weapons and cash, no information that would suggest there was anyone else who wanted to kill Geneva Settle. John Earl Wilson, the ex-con from New Jersey who'd made the booby trap in Boyd's Queen's safe house, was presently en route to Rhymes, and the criminalist hoped he'd confirm their conclusions. Still... Rhyme and Bell decided to dedicate a uniformed officer in a squad car to protection detail for Geneva. Now a computer sounded a friendly chirp, and Mel Cooper looked over at the screen. He opened an email. Ah, the mystery is solved. Which mystery would that be? Rhyme said this gruffly. His moods, forever fragile, tended to sour toward the end of a case when boredom loomed. Winskinski! The Indian word on the ring Sachs had found around the finger bone beneath the ruins of Potter's Field Tavern. And this is from a professor at the University of Maryland. Aside from the literal translation in the Delaware language, Winskinski was a title in the Tammany Society. Title? Sort of like a sergeant at arms. Boss Tweed was the grand sachem, the big chief, our boy, a nod toward the bones and skull Sachs had found in the cistern, was the Winskinski, the doorkeeper. Tammany Hall. Rhyme nodded as he considered this, letting his mind wander back in time, past this case, into the smoky sepia world of nineteenth-century New York. And Tweed hung out in Potter's Field. So he and the Tammany Hall machine were probably behind setting Charles up. He ordered Cooper to add the recent findings to the chart. He then spent some moments looking over the information. He nodded. Fascinating. Salito shrugged. The case is over with, Link. The hitmen, excuse me, hit people have been collared. 
The terrorist is dead. Why is something that happened a hundred years ago so fascinating? Nearly a hundred and forty years, Lon, let's be accurate. He was frowning as he stared intently at the evidence chart, the maps, and the placid face of the hanged man. And the answer to your question is, you know how much I hate loose ends. Yeah, but what's loose? What's the one thing we've forgotten all about in the heat of battle? If we may tread through a minefield of clichés again, Lon. I give, Solito grunted. Charles Singleton's secret. Even if it doesn't have anything to do with constitutional law or terrorists, I, at least, am dying to know what it was. I think we should find out. Van Bombing Scene Van registered to Bani al-Dahab, sea profile. Delivered food to Middle Eastern restaurants and carts. Letter taking responsibility for jewelry exchange bombing recovered. Paper matches earlier documents. Components of explosive device recovered. Residue of Tovex, wires, battery, radio receiver, detonator, portions of container, UPS box. Thompson Boyd's residence and primary safe house. More falafel and yogurt, orange paint trace as before. Cash, fee for job, $100,000 in new bills, untraceable probably withdrawn in small amounts over time. Weapons, guns, billy club, rope, traced to prior crime scenes. Acid and cyanide, traced to prior crime scenes, no links to manufacturers. No cell phone found, other telephone records not helpful. Tools traced to prior crime scenes. Letter revealing that G. Settle was targeted because he was a witness to jewelry heist in the planning. More pure carbon identified as diamond dust trace. Sent to Parker Kincaid in Washington, D.C., for document examination. Writer's first language, most likely Arabic. Improvised explosive device as part of booby trap. Fingerprints are those of convicted bomb maker John Earl Wilson. Located, en route to Rhymes for interviewing. Potter's Field, scene, 1868. Tavern in Gallows Heights. Located in the 80s on the Upper West Side. Mixed neighborhood in the 1860s. Potter's Field was possible hangout for Boss Tweed and other corrupt New York politicians. Charles came here July 15, 1868. Burned down following explosion, presumably just after Charles's visit. To hide his secret? Body in basement, man presumably killed by Charles Singleton. Shot in forehead by 36 Navy Colt, loaded with 39 caliber ball, type of weapon Charles Singleton owned. Gold coins. Man was armed with Derringer. No identification. Had ring with name Winskinski on it. Means doorman or gatekeeper in Delaware Indian language. Currently searching other meanings. Was title of official in Boss Tweed's Tammany Hall political machine. Profile of Unsub 109. Determined to be Thompson G. Boyd, former executions control officer from Amarillo, Texas. Presently in custody. Profile of Person Hiring on Sub-109 Bani al-Dahab, Saudi national, in country illegally after visa expired. Deceased. Search of apartment revealed no other terrorist connections. Presently checking phone records. Currently investigating his employers for possible terrorist links. Profile of Unsub-109's accomplice. 
determined not to be man originally described, but Alina Fraser, presently in custody. Search of apartment revealed weapons and money, nothing else relevant to case. Profile of Charles Singleton. Former slave. Ancestor of G. Settle. Married, one son. Given orchard in New York State by master. Worked as teacher as well. Instrumental in early civil rights movement. Charles allegedly committed theft in 1868, the subject of the article in Stolen Microfiche. Reportedly had a secret that could bear on case. Worried that tragedy would result if his secret was revealed. Attended meetings in Gallows Heights, neighborhood of New York. Involved in some risky activities. Worked with Frederick Douglass and others in getting the 14th Amendment to the Constitution ratified. The crime as reported in the Colored's Weekly Illustrated. Charles arrested by Detective William Sims for stealing large sum from Friedman's trust in New York. Broke into the trust's safe. Witnesses saw him leave shortly after. His tools were found nearby. Most money was recovered. He was sentenced to five years in prison. No information about him after sentencing, believed to have used his connections with early civil rights leaders to gain access to the trust. Charles's Correspondence Letter 1 to Wife, re-draft riots in 1863, great anti-black sentiment throughout New York State, lynchings, arson, risk to property owned by blacks. Letter 2 to Wife, Charles at Battle of Appomattox at end of Civil War. Letter 3 to Wife, involved in civil rights movement, threatened for this work, troubled by his secret. Letter 4 to Wife, went to Potter's Field with his gun for justice. Results were disastrous. The truth is now hidden in Potter's Field. His secret was what caused all this heartache. Part 5 The Freedmen's Secret Friday, October 12th to Friday, October 26th Chapter 39 the fifty-four-year-old white man in a Brooks Brothers suit sat in one of his two Manhattan offices, engaging in an intense debate with himself. Yes or no? The question was important, literally a matter of life and death. Trim, solidly built William Ashbery, Jr., sat back in a creaking chair and looked over the horizon of New Jersey. This office was not as elegant or stylish as the one in Lower Manhattan, but it was his favorite. The twenty-by-thirty-foot room was in the historic Sanford Mansion on the Upper West Side, owned by the bank of which he was a senior officer. He pondered. Yes? No? Ashbury was a financier and entrepreneur of the old school, meaning, for instance, he'd ignored the eagle of the Internet when it soared into the heavens, and hadn't lost a night's sleep when it turned on its masters, except to superficially console clients who hadn't listened to his advice. This refusal to be wooed by fad, combined with solid investing in blue-chip companies and, especially, New York City real estate, had made both himself and Sanford Bank and Trust a huge amount of money. Old school, sure, but only to a point. Oh, he had the lifestyle afforded by a million-plus annual salary, along with the revered bonuses that were the mainstay of Wall Street, several homes, memberships in nice country clubs, pretty, well-educated daughters, and connections with a number of charities that he and his wife were pleased to help out. 
a private Grumman for his not infrequent trips overseas, was an important perk. But Ashbury was also atypical of your Forbes-level business executives. Scratch the surface, and you'd find pretty much the same tough kid from South Philly whose father had been a head-knocking factory worker and whose grandfather had done some book-cooking and tougher work for Angelo Bruno, the docile Don, and later for Phil Chicken Man Testa. Ashbury had run with a tough crowd himself, made money with blades and brains, and did some things that could have come back to haunt him in a big way if he hadn't made absolutely sure they were forever buried. But in his early twenties, he had the presence of mind to realize that if he kept loan-sharking and busting heads for protection money and hanging out on Dixon and Reed streets in Philly, his only rewards would be cheesesteak change and a good shot at prison. If he did more or less the same thing in the world of business and hanging out on Lower Broadway and the Upper West Side of Manhattan, he'd get fucking rich and have a good shot at Albany or Washington. He might even try to fill Frank Rizzo's shoes. Why not? So, it was law school at night, a real estate license, and eventually a job at Sanford Bank, first on a cash drawer, then moving his way up through the ranks. The money did indeed start coming in, slowly at first, then in a steady stream. He rose fast to be head of the bank's hottest division, the real estate operation, rolling over competitors both within the bank and outside with his bare-knuckle approach to business. Then he'd finagled the job as head of the Sanford Foundation, the philanthropic side of the bank, which was, he'd learned, the best way to make political connections. Another glance at the Jersey horizon, another moment of debate, rubbing his hand compulsively up and down his thigh, solid from his tennis sessions, jogging, golf, yachting. Yes or no. Life and death. Calculating, one foot forever rooted on South Philly's 17th Street, Bill Ashbury played with the big boys. Men, for instance, like Thompson Boyd. Ashbury had gotten the killer's name from an arsonist who'd made the mistake of burning down one of Ashbury's commercial properties and got caught in the process some years ago. After Ashbury realized he had to kill Geneva Settle, he'd hired a private eye to track down the paroled burn man and had paid him $20,000 to put him in touch with the professional killer. The scruffy man, for God's sake a mullet, had suggested Boyd. Ashbury had been impressed with the choice. Boyd was fucking scary, yes, but not in some over-the-top, ballsy, South Philly way. What was scary was that he was so calm, so flat, not a spark of emotion behind his eyes, never spitting out a single fuck or prick. The banker had explained what he needed, and they'd arranged for payment a quarter million dollars. Even that figure hadn't gotten a rise out of Boyd. He seemed more interested, you couldn't say excited, about the prospect of killing a young girl, as if he'd never done that before. It looked for a time like Boyd would be successful, and the girl would die, and all of Ashbury's problems would be over with. But then, disaster. Boyd and his accomplice, that Frazier woman, were in jail. Hence, the debate. Yes, no. Should Ashbury kill Geneva Settle himself? With his typical approach to business, he considered the risks. 
Despite his zombie personality, Boyd had been as sharp as he was frightening. He knew the business of death, knew about investigating crimes, too, and how you could use motive to point the police in the wrong direction. He'd come up with several phony motives to mislead the cops. First, an attempted rape, which hadn't worked. The second was more subtle. He'd planted seeds where they'd be sure to grow nowadays, a terrorist connection. He and his accomplice had found some poor raghead who delivered Middle Eastern food to carts and restaurants near the jewelry exchange, the building that was across the street from where Geneva Settle was to be killed. Boyd located the restaurant he worked for and staked out the place, learned which van was his. Boyd and his partner set up a series of clues to make it seem that the Arab loser was a terrorist planning a bombing, and that he wanted Geneva dead because she'd seen him planning the attack. Boyd had gone to the trouble of stealing sheets of scrap office paper from the trash behind the exchange. He'd drawn a map on one sheet and on another written a note about the girl in Arabic-tinted English. An Arabic-language website had been helpful there to fool the cops. Boyd was going to leave these notes near crime scenes, but it had worked out even better than that. The police found them in Boyd's safe house before he'd planted them, which gave more credibility to the terrorism hook. They'd used Middle Eastern food for clues and called in fake terrorist bomb threats to the FBI from payphones around the area. Boyd hadn't planned to go any further with the charade than this. But then, a goddamn policewoman, that Detective Sachs, showed up right here at the Foundation to dig through their archives. Ashbury still remembered how he'd struggled to stay calm, making small talk with the beautiful redhead and offering her the run of the stacks. He'd used all his willpower to keep from heading downstairs himself and casually asking her what she was looking into. But there was too great a chance that this would arouse suspicion. He'd agreed to let her take some materials, and when he looked over the log after she left, he didn't see anything too troubling. Still, her presence alone at the foundation, and the fact she wanted to check out some materials, told the banker that the cops hadn't caught on to the terrorist motive. Ashbury had immediately called Boyd and told him to make the story more credible. The hitman had bought a working bomb from the arsonist who'd put Ashbury in touch with Boyd. He'd planted the device in the delivery van, along with a ranting letter to the Times about Zionists. Boyd was arrested just after that, but his partner, that black woman from Harlem, had detonated the bomb, and finally the police got the message. Terrorism. And since the raghead was dead, they'd pull back the protection on the girl. This gave Alina Frazier the chance to finish the job. But the police had outsmarted her, too, and she'd been caught. The big question now was, did the police believe the threat to the girl was finally gone, with the mastermind dead and the two professional killers arrested? He decided they might not be completely convinced, but their defenses would be lowered. So what was the level of risk if he went ahead? Minimal, he decided. Geneva Settle would die. Now he only needed an opportunity. Boyd had said she'd moved out of her apartment in West Harlem and was staying someplace else. The only connection Ashbury had was her school. He rose, left his office, and took the ornate elevator downstairs.
then walked to Broadway and found a phone kiosk. Always pay phones, never private landlines, and never, ever mobile phones. Thank you, Thompson. He got a number from directory assistants and placed a call. Langston Hughes, hi, the woman answered. He glanced at the side of a nearby retail store delivery truck and said to the receptionist, This is Detective Steve Macy with the police department. I need to speak to an administrator. A moment later, he was put through to an assistant principal. How can I help you? the harried man asked. Ashbury could hear a dozen voices in the background. The businessman himself had detested every minute he'd spent in school. He identified himself again and added, I'm following up on an incident that involved one of your students, Geneva Settle. Oh, she was that witness, right? Yep, I need to get some papers to her this afternoon. The district attorney's going to be indicting some of the people involved in the case, and we need her signature on a statement. Can I speak to her? Sure, hold on. A pause as he asked someone else in the room about the girl's schedule. Ashbury heard something about her being absent. The administrator came back on. She's not in school today. She'll be back Monday. Oh, is she at home? Wait, hold on a minute. Another voice was speaking to the principal, offering a suggestion. Please, Ashbury thought. The man came back on the line. One of her teachers thinks she's at Columbia this afternoon working on some project. The university? Yeah, try Professor Mathers. I don't have his first name, sorry. The administrator sounded preoccupied, but to make sure the man didn't call the police just to check on him, Ashbury said in a dismissing way, you know, I'll just call the officers who are guarding her fangs. Yeah, so long. Ashbury hung up and paused, looking over the busy street. He'd only wanted her address. But this might work out better, even though the principal didn't sound surprised when Ashbury mentioned the guards, which meant that somebody might still be protecting her. He'd have to take that fact into account. He called the main Columbia switchboard and learned that Professor Mather's office hours today were from one to six. How long would Geneva be there? Ashbury wondered. He hoped it would be for most of the day. He had a lot to do. This ends Disc 12, the twelfth card, Disc 13. At 4.30 that afternoon... William Ashbury was cruising in his BMW M5 through Harlem, looking around him. He didn't think of the place in racial or cultural terms. He saw it as an opportunity. For him, a man's worth was determined by his ability to pay his debts on time. Specifically, and from a self-interested point of view, a man's ability to cough up the rent or mortgage on one of the redevelopment projects that Sanford Bank had going on in Harlem. If a borrower was black or Hispanic or white or Asian, if he was a drug dealer or an ad agency executive, didn't matter, as long as he wrote that monthly check. Now, on 125th Street, he passed one of the very buildings his bank was renovating. The graffiti had been scrubbed off, the interior gutted, building materials stacked on the ground floor. The old tenants had been given incentives to relocate. Some reluctant residents had been urged to and had taken the hint. Several new renters had already signed expensive leases, even though the construction wouldn't be completed for six months. 
He turned onto a crowded commercial street, looking at the vendors. Not what he needed. The banker continued on his search, the final task in an afternoon that had been hectic, to say the least. After leaving his office at the Sanford Foundation, he'd sped to his weekend house in New Jersey. There, he'd unlocked the gun cabinet and removed his double-barreled shotgun. At the workbench in the garage, he'd sawed the barrels off, making the gun only about eighteen inches long, a surprisingly hard job which had cost him a half-dozen electric saw blades. Tossing the discarded barrels into the pond behind the house, the banker had paused, looking around him, reflecting that this deck was the place where his oldest daughter would be getting married next year after she graduated from Vassar. He'd remained there for a long moment, gazing at the sun breaking on the cold blue water. Then he'd loaded the shortened gun and placed it and a dozen shells in a cardboard carton, covered them with some old books, newspapers, and magazines. He wouldn't need any props better than these. The professor and Geneva weren't going to survive long enough to even look inside the box. Dressed in a mismatched sports coat and suit, hair slicked back with drugstore reading glasses, the best disguise he could come up with, Ashbury had then sped across the George Washington Bridge and into Harlem, where he now was, searching for the last prop for the drama. Ah, there. The banker parked and got out of the car. He walked up to the Nation of Islam street vendor and bought a kufi, an Islamic skullcap drawing not the least blink of surprise from the man. Ashbury, who took the hat in his gloved hand, thanks again, Thompson, then returned to the car. When no one was looking, he bent down and rubbed the hat on the ground beneath a telephone kiosk where he guessed many people had stood during the past day or so. The hat would pick up some dirt and other evidence, ideally a hair or two, which would give the police even more false leads on the terrorist connection. He rubbed the inside of the hat on the mouthpiece of the phone to pick up saliva and sweat for DNA samples. Slipping the hat into the box with the gun and magazines and books, he climbed back into the car and drove to Morningside Heights and onto the Columbia campus. He now found the old faculty building that housed Mathers' office. The businessman spotted a police car parked in front, an officer sitting in the front seat looking vigilantly over the street, so she did have a guard. Well, he could handle it. He'd survived tougher situations than this on the streets of South Philly and in boardrooms down on Wall Street. Surprise was the best advantage. You could beat overwhelming odds if you did the unexpected. Continuing along the street, he made a U-turn and parked behind the building, his car well out of sight and aimed toward the highway for a fast escape. He climbed out and looked around. Yes, it could work. He could approach the office from the side, then slip through the front door when the cop was looking elsewhere. As for getting away, there was a back door to the building. Two ground-level windows, too. If the cop ran for the building the minute he heard the shots, Ashbury could shoot him from one of the front windows. In any case, he should have enough time to drop the kufi as evidence and get to his car before any other police arrived. He found a payphone. He called the school's main switchboard. Columbia University, a voice replied. Professor Mathers, please. One moment. A black-inflected voice answered, Hello. Professor Mathers? That's right. 
In the persona of Steve Macy again, Ashbery explained that he was an author from Philadelphia doing research at the Lehman Library, the Columbia facility devoted to social science and journalism. The Sanford Foundation had given a lot of money to libraries and schools like this one. Ashbery had attended benefits there. He could describe it if he had to. He then said that one of the librarians had heard Mathers had been looking into 19th century New York history. Particularly, the Reconstruction era, was that right? The professor gave a surprised laugh. I am, as a matter of fact. It's not for me, actually. I'm helping out a high school student. She's with me right now. Thank God. The girl was still there. I can get it all over with now. Get on with my life. Ashbury said that he'd brought quite a lot of material up from Philly. Would he and this student be interested in taking a look? The professor said they definitely would, thanked him, then asked what would be a convenient time to come by. When he was seventeen, Billy Ashbury had held a box cutter against the thigh of an elderly shopkeeper and reminded him that the man's protection payments were past due. The razor was going to cut one inch for every day the payment was late, unless he paid up instantly. His voice had been as calm then as it was now, saying to Mathers, I'm leaving tonight, but I could drop by now. You can make copies if you want. You have a Xerox machine? I do, yes. I'll be there in a few minutes. They hung up. Ashbury reached into the box and clicked the safety button on the shotgun to the off position. Then he hefted the carton and started toward the building through a swirl of autumn leaves spun in tiny cyclones by the cold breeze. Chapter 40 Professor? You're Steve Macy? The dowdy professor, sporting a bow tie and tweed jacket, was sitting behind piles of papers covering his desk. He smiled. Yes, sir. I'm Richard Mathers. This is Geneva Settle. A short teenage girl, her skin as dark as the professor's, glanced at him and nodded. Then she looked eagerly at the box he carted. She was so young. Could he really kill her? Then an image of his daughter's wedding on the dock of his summer house flashed through his mind, followed by a series of fast thoughts, the Mercedes AMG his wife wanted, his membership at the Augusta Golf Course, the dinner plans he had this evening at L'Etoile, to which the New York Times had just given three stars. Those images answered his question. Ashbury set the box on the floor. No cops inside, he noticed with relief. He shook Mathers' hand and thought, Fuck, they can lift fingerprints from flesh. After the shootings, he'd have to take the time to wipe off the man's palms. He remembered what Thompson Boyd had told him when it came to death. You did everything by the book or you walked away from the job. Ashbury smiled at the girl, didn't shake her hand. He looked around the office, judging angles. Sorry for the mess, Mathers said. Mine isn't any better, he said with a faint laugh. The room was filled with books, magazines, and stacks of photocopies. On the wall were a number of diplomas. Mathers was, it turned out, not a history, but a law professor, and a well-known one, apparently. Ashbury was looking at a photo of the professor with Bill Clinton and another with former Mayor Giuliani. As he saw these photos... The remorse raised its head again, but it was really nothing more than a faint blip on the screen by now. 
Ashbury was comfortable with the fact that he was in the room with two dead people. They chatted for a few minutes, with Ashbury talking in vague terms about schools and libraries in Philadelphia, avoiding any direct comments about what he was looking into. He stayed on the offensive, asking the professor, "'What exactly are you researching?' Matters deferred to Geneva, who explained that they were trying to find out about her ancestor, Charles Singleton, a former slave. "'It was pretty weird,' she said. "'The police thought that there was this connection between him and some crimes, ones that just happened. That turned out to be pretty whack. I mean, it was wrong. But we're all curious about what happened to him. Nobody seems to know.' "'Let's take a look at what you've got,' Mathers said, clearing a spot on a low table in front of his desk. "'I'll get another chair.' "'This is it,' Ashbury thought. His heart began pounding fast. He then recalled the razor knife slipping into the shopkeeper's flesh, cutting two inches for the two days of missed juice, Ashbury hardly hearing the man's screams. Recalled all the years of back-breaking work to get to where he was today.' recalled Thompson Boyd's dead eyes. He was instantly calm. As soon as Mathers stepped into the hallway, the banker glanced out the window. The policeman was still in the car, a good fifty feet away, and the building was so solid he might not even hear the gunshots. With the desk between himself and Geneva, he bent down, shuffling through the papers. He gripped the shotgun. "'Did you find any pictures?' Geneva asked. "'I'd really like to find more about what the neighborhood looked like back then.' I have a few, I think. Mathers was returning. Coffee? he called from the hallway. No, thanks. Ashbury turned to the door. Now, he started to rise, pulling the gun from the box, keeping it below Geneva's eye level, aiming at the doorway, finger around the trigger. But something was wrong. Mathers wasn't appearing. It was then that Ashbury felt something metallic touch his ear. William Ashbury, you're under arrest. I have a weapon. It was the girl's voice, though a very different sound, an adult voice. Set that breakdown on the desk. Slow. Ashbury froze. But the shotgun. Set it down. The girl nudged his head with the pistol. I'm a police officer, and I will use my firearm. Oh, Lord. No, it was all a trap. Listen up now. You do what she's telling you. This was the professor, though of course it wasn't Mathers at all. He was a stand-in, too, a cop who was pretending to be the professor. He glanced sideways. The man had come back into the office through a side door. From his neck dangled an FBI identification card. He, too, held a pistol. How the hell had they gotten onto him? Ashbury wondered in disgust. And don't move that muzzle so much as a skinny little millimeter. We all together on that? I'm not going to tell you again, the girl said in a calm voice. Do it now. Still he didn't move. Ashbury thought of his grandfather, the mobster. He thought of the screaming shopkeeper. He thought of his daughter's wedding. What would Thompson Boyd do? Play it by the book and give up. No fucking way. Ashbury dropped into a crouch and spun around, lightning fast, lifting the gun. Somebody shouted, Don't! The last word he ever heard. Chapter 41 Quite a view, Tom said. 
Lincoln Rhyme glanced out the window at the Hudson River, the rock cliffs of the Palisades on the opposite shore, and the distant hills of New Jersey. Maybe Pennsylvania, too. He turned away immediately, the expression on his face explaining that panoramic views, like people's pointing them out, bored him senseless. They were in the Sanford Foundation office of the late William Ashbery, atop the Hiram Sanford Mansion on West 82nd Street. Wall Street was still digesting the news of the man's death and his involvement in a series of crimes over the past few days. Not that the financial community had ground to a halt, compared with, say, the betrayals visited on shareholders and employees by executives of Enron and Global Crossing, the death of a crooked executive of a profitable company didn't make compelling news. Amelia Sachs had already searched the office and removed evidence linking Ashbury to Boyd and taped off certain parts of the room. This meeting was in a cleared area which happened to feature stained glass windows and rosewood paneling. Sitting beside Rhyme and Tom were Geneva Settle and attorney Wesley Goads. Rhyme was amused that there had been a few moments when he'd actually suspected Goads of complicity in the case. Owing to his suddenly materializing in Rhyme's apartment looking for Geneva, and the Fourteenth Amendment aspect of the intrigue. The lawyer would have had a strong motive to make certain that nothing jeopardized an important weapon for civil libertarians. Rhyme had also wondered if the man's loyalty to his former insurance company employers had led him to betray Geneva. But Rhyme hadn't shared his suspicion of the lawyer, and thus no apologies were in order. After Rhyme and Sachs had discovered that the case had taken an unexpected turn, the criminalist had suggested that Goads be retained for what was coming next. Geneva Settle, of course, was all in favor of hiring him. Across the marble coffee table from them were Gregory Hansen, the president of Sanford Bank and Trust, his assistant, Stella Turner, and the senior partner at Sanford's law firm, a trim mid-forties attorney named Anthony Cole. They exuded a collective unease, which, Rhyme assumed, would have arisen late yesterday when he'd called Hansen to propose a meeting to discuss the Ashbury matter. Hansen had agreed, but added, both quickly and wearily, that he was as shocked as anyone about the man's death in the shootout at Columbia University several days before. He knew nothing about it, or about any jewelry store robbery or terrorist attack, except what he'd read in the news. What exactly did Rhyme and the police want? Rhyme had offered standard cop ease, just the answers to a few routine questions. Now, pleasantries disposed of, Hansen asked, Could you tell us what this is about? Rhyme got right to the point. He explained that William Ashbury had hired Thompson Boyd, a professional killer, to murder Geneva Settle. Three horrified glances at the slim young girl in front of them. She looked back at each of them calmly. Continuing, the criminalist added that Ashbury felt it was vital that nobody know the reason he wanted her dead, so he and Boyd had set up several fake motives for the girl's death. Originally, the kill was supposed to look like a rape. Rhyme, though, had seen through that immediately, and as they continued to search for the killer, he and the team had found what appeared to be the real reason for the murder, that Geneva could identify a terrorist planning an attack. But there were some problems with that. The bomber's death should have ended any need to kill Geneva, but it didn't. Boyd's partner tried again. What was going on? We tracked down the man who sold the bomb to Boyd, an arsonist in New Jersey. 
The FBI arrested him. We linked some bills in his possession to Boyd's safe house. That made him an accomplice to murder, and he copped a plea. He told us that he put Ashbury and Boyd together, and... This terrorist thing, though, the bank's lawyer said skeptically with a sour laugh. Bill Ashbury and terrorists, it... Getting there, Rhymes said, equally sour. Maybe more so. He continued his explanation. The bomb-maker's statement wasn't enough for a warrant to arrest Ashbury, so Rhyme and Silito decided they needed to flush him out. They placed an officer at Geneva's high school, a man pretending to be an assistant principal. Anyone calling to ask about Geneva would be told that she was at Columbia with a professor in the law school. The real professor agreed to let them use not only his name, but his office as well. Fred Del Rey and Jeanette Monroe, the undercover gangster girl from Geneva's high school, were more than happy to play the roles of the professor and student. They'd done a fast but thorough job setting up the sting, even having some fake Photoshop pictures made up of Del Rey with Bill Clinton and Rudy Giuliani, to make sure Ashbury didn't tip to the scam, and bolt. Rhyme now explained these events to Hansen and Cole, adding the details about the attempted murder in Mathers's office. He shook his head. I should have guessed the perp had some connections to a bank. He'd been able to withdraw large amounts of cash and doctor the reporting statements. But, Rhyme nodded to the lawyer, what the hell was he up to? I understand that Episcopalians aren't really a breeding ground for fundamentalist terrorism. No one smiled. Rhyme thought, bankers, lawyers, no sense of humor. He continued. So I went back to the evidence and noticed something that bothered me. There was no radio transmitter to detonate the bomb. It should have been in the wreckage of the van, but it wasn't. Why not? One conclusion was that Boyd and his partner had planted the bomb and kept the transmitter themselves to kill the Arab delivery man as a diversion to keep us from finding the real motive for killing Geneva. Okay, Hansen said. The real motive. What was it? Had to do some thinking about that. I thought at first maybe Geneva had seen some tenants being evicted illegally when she was scrubbing graffiti off old buildings for a developer. But I looked into where that had happened and found that Sanford Bank wasn't involved in those buildings, so where did that leave us? I could only come back to what we'd originally thought. He explained about the old Colored's Weekly Illustrated that Boyd had stolen. I'd forgotten that somebody had been tracking down the magazine before Geneva supposedly saw the van and terrorist. I think what happened was that Ashbury stumbled on that article when the Sanford Foundation renovated its archives last month. And he did some more research and found something real troubling. Something that could ruin his life. He got rid of the Foundation's copy and decided he had to destroy all the copies of the magazine. Over the past few weeks, he found most of them. But there was one left in the area. The librarian at the African American Museum in Midtown was getting their copy from storage and must have told Ashbury that, coincidentally, there was a girl who was interested in the same issue. Ashbury knew he had to destroy the article and kill Geneva along with the librarian because he could connect them. But I still don't understand why. Cole, the lawyer, said his sourness had blossomed into full-fledged irritation. Rhyme explained the final piece of the puzzle. He related the story of Charles Singleton, the farm he'd been given by his master and the Freedmen's Trust robbery, and the fact that the former slave had a secret. 
That was the answer to why Charles was set up in 1868. And it's the answer to why Ashbury had to kill Geneva. Secret? Stella, the assistant, asked. Oh, yes, I finally figured out what it was. I remembered something that Geneva's father had told me. He said that Charles taught at an African free school near his home, and that he sold cider to workers building boats up the road. Grimes shook his head. I made a careless assumption. We heard that his farm was in New York State, which it was. Except that it wasn't upstate, like we were thinking. No, where was it? Hanson asked. Easy to figure out, he continued, if you keep in mind there were working farms here in the city until the late eighteen hundreds. You mean his farm was in Manhattan? Stella asked. Not only, Rhymes said, allowing himself the colloquialism, it was right underneath this building. Chapter 42 We found a drawing of Gallows Heights in the eighteen hundreds, that shows three or four big tree-filled estates. One of them covered this and the surrounding blocks. Across the road from it was an African free school. Could that have been his school and on the Hudson River? Rhyme glanced out the window. Right about there, at 81st Street, was a dry dock and shipyard. Could the workers there have been the ones Charles sold cider to? But was the estate his? There was one simple way to find out. Tom checked the Manhattan recorder's office and found the record of a deed from Charles's master to Charles. Yep, it was his. Then everything else fell into place. All the references we found to meetings in Gallows Heights with politicians and civil rights leaders, it was Charles's house they were meeting in. That was his secret, that he owned fifteen acres of prime land in Manhattan. But why was it a secret? Hanson asked. Oh, he didn't dare tell anyone he was the owner. He wanted to, of course. That's what he was so tormented about. He was proud that he owned a big farm in the city. He believed he could be a model for other former slaves. Show them that they could be treated as whole men, respected. That they could own land and work it, be members of the community. But he'd seen draft riots, the lynchings of blacks, the arson. So he and his wife pretended to be caretakers. He was afraid that somebody would find out that a former slave owned a large plot of choice property and destroy it, or more likely, steal it from him. Which, Geneva said, is exactly what happened. Rhyme continued. When Charles was convicted, all his property was confiscated, including the farm, and sold. Now, that's a nice theory, setting up someone with false charges to steal his property, but was there any proof? A tall order, a hundred and forty years later, talk about cold cases. Well, there was some evidence. The Exeter Strongbow safes, the type that Charles allegedly broke into at the Freedmen's Trust, they were made in England, so I called a friend at Scotland Yard. He talked to a forensic locksmith who said it'd be impossible to break into a nineteenth-century Exeter safe with only a hammer and chisel, which is what they found at the scene. Even steam-powered drills of that era would take three or four hours, and the article about the theft said that Charles was inside the trust for only twenty minutes. Next conclusion. Somebody else robbed the place, planted some of Charles's tools at the scene, and then bribed a witness to lie about him. I think that the actual thief was a man we found buried in the basement of the Pottersfield Tavern. He explained about the Winskinski ring and the man who'd worn it, 
that he was an officer in the corrupt Tammany Hall political machine. He was one of Boss Tweed's cronies, and another one was William Sims, the detective who arrested Charles. Sims was later indicted for graft and planting false evidence on suspects. Sims, the Winskinski man and the judge and prosecutor, engineered Charles's conviction, and they kept the money from the trust that wasn't recovered. So, we've established Charles owned a huge estate in Gallows Heights, and he was set up so somebody could steal it. His eyebrow rose. The next logical question, the big one? No takers. Obviously, who the hell was the perp? Rhymes snapped. Who robbed Charles? Well, given that the motive was to steal his farm, all I had to do was find out who took title to the land. Who was it? Hanson asked, troubled but seemingly caught up in the historical drama. The assistant smoothed her skirt and suggested, Boss Tweed? No, it was a colleague of his, a man who was seen regularly at the Potter's Field Tavern, along with some of the other notorious figures back then, Jim Fisk, Jay Gould, and Detective Sims. A glance at each of the people across the table. His name was Hiram Sanford. The woman blinked. After a moment, she said, The founder of our bank. The one and only. This is ridiculous, said Cole, the attorney. How could he do that? He was one of the pillars of New York society. Just like William Ashbery? The criminalist asked sarcastically. The business world wasn't really any different then than it is now. Lots of financial speculation. One of Charles's letters quoted the New York Tribune, referring to the bursting bubbles on Wall Street. Railroads were the Internet companies of the 1800s. Their stocks were overvalued and crashed. Sanford probably lost his fortune when that happened, and Tweed agreed to bail him out. But, being Tweed, he naturally wanted to use somebody else's money to do it. So the two of them set up Charles, and Sanford bought the orchard at a rigged auction for a fraction of its value. He tore down Charles's house and built his mansion on it, where we're sitting right now. A nod out the window toward the blocks nearby. And then he and his heirs developed the land or sold it off little by little. Didn't Charles claim he was innocent? Tell them what happened? Hanson asked. Rhyme scoffed. A former slave against the anti-black Tammany Hall Democratic machine? How successful would that have been? Besides, he killed the man in the tavern. So he was a murderer, the attorney Cole pointed out quickly. Of course not, Rhyme snapped. He needed the Winskinski man alive to prove his innocence. The death was self-defense, but Charles had no choice but to hide the body and cover up the shooting. If they'd found out, he'd be hanged. Hanson shook his head. Only there's one thing that doesn't make any sense. Why would what Hiram Sanford did way back then affect Bill Ashbery? Granted, it's bad PR. A bank founder stealing a former slave's property? That'd be an ugly ten minutes on the nightly news. But frankly, there are spin doctors who can handle that sort of thing. It's not worth killing somebody for. Ah, Rhyme nodded. Very good question. We've done a little research. Ashbury was in charge of your real estate division, right? That's right. And if it were to go under, he'd lose his job and most of his fortune. I suppose so, but why would it go under? It's our most profitable unit. Rhyme looked at Wesley Goads. 
You're up. The lawyer glanced briefly at the people across the table, then down again. The man simply could not hold eye contact. Nor was he given to Rhymes' pointed explanations and occasional digressions. He said simply, We're here to inform you that Ms. Settle intends to file a lawsuit against your bank, seeking restitution for her loss. Hanson frowned and looked at Cole, who gave them a sympathetic look. On the facts that you've given me, making a tortious claim against the bank for infliction of emotional distress probably wouldn't get very far. See, the problem is that Mr. Ashbury was acting on his own, not as a bank officer. We're not responsible for his actions. A glance toward Goads, which may or may not have been condescending, as your fine counsel here will tell you. Hanson added quickly to Geneva, but we're very sympathetic to what you went through. Stella Turner nodded. They seemed to mean this sincerely. We'll make it up to you, he offered a smile. I think you'll find we can be pretty generous. His lawyer added what he had to, within reason. Rhyme regarded the bank president closely. Gregory Hansen seemed nice enough. Boyishly fifties, an easy smile, probably one of those natural-born businessmen. The sort who was a decent boss and family man, did his job competently, worked long hours for the shareholders, flew coach on the company dime, remembered his employees' birthdays. The criminalist almost felt bad about what was coming next. Wesley Goads, however, exhibited no remorse whatsoever as he said, Mr. Hansen, the loss we're talking about isn't your corporate officer's attempted murder of Ms. Settle, which is how we phrase the act, not emotional distress. No, her suit is on behalf of Charles Singleton's heirs to recover the property stolen by Hiram Sanford, as well as monetary damages. Wait, the President whispered, giving a faint laugh. Damages equal to the rents and profits that your bank has made from that property from the date the court transferred title. He consulted a piece of paper. That'll be August 4, 1868. The money will be placed in a trust for the benefit of all of Mr. Singleton's descendants, with distribution to be supervised by the court. We don't have the actual figure yet. Finally, Goads looked up and held Hansen's eye. But we're ballparking it conservatively at around $970 million. Chapter 43 That's what William Ashbury was willing to kill for, Ryan explained. To keep the theft of Charles's property a secret. If anybody found out and his heirs made a claim, it would be the end of the real estate division and might even drive the entire Sanford Bank into bankruptcy. Ah, oh, well, now, this is absurd, the lawyer across the table from them blustered. The two legal opponents were equally tall and skinny, though Cole had a better tan. Rhymes suspected that Wesley Goads didn't get out on tennis courts or golf courses very often. Look around you. The blocks are developed. Every square inch is built on. We have no claim to the construction, Goads said, as if this were clear. We only want title to the land and the rents that have been paid with respect to it. For a hundred and forty years? It's not our problem that that's when Sanford robbed Charles. But most of the land's been sold off, Hanson said. The bank only owns the two apartment buildings on this block and this mansion. Well, naturally, we'll be instituting an accounting action to trace the proceeds of the property your bank illegally sold. 
but we've been disposing of parcels for over a hundred years. Goad spoke to the tabletop. I'll say again, your problem, not ours. No, Cole snapped. Forget it. Miss Settle is actually being quite restrained in her damage claim. There's a good argument to be made for the fact that without her ancestor's property, your bank would have gone under altogether in the 1860s and that she's entitled to all of your worldwide earnings. But we're not seeking that. She doesn't want the present shareholders of the bank to suffer too much. Damn generous, the lawyer muttered. It was her decision. I was in favor of closing it down. Cole leaned forward. Listen. Why don't you take a reality pill here? You have no case. For one thing, the statute of limitations has run. You'll be kicked out of court on motion. Have you ever noticed, Rhyme asked, unable to resist, how people always lead with their weakest argument? Sorry, forgive the footnote. As for the statute, Goad said, we can make a solid argument that it's been told and we're entitled to bring the suit under principles of equity. The lawyer had explained to Rhyme that in some cases the time limit on bringing a lawsuit could be told, extended, if the defendant covers up a crime so that the victims don't know it occurred, or when they aren't able to sue, like when the courts and prosecutors were acting in collusion with the wrongdoer, which had happened in the Singleton case. Goads reiterated this now. But whatever Hiram Sanford did, the other lawyer pointed out, it had nothing to do with my client, the present bank. We've traced ownership of the bank all the way back to the original Hiram Sanford Bank and Trust Limited, which was the entity that took title to the Singleton Farm. Sanford used the bank as a cover. Unfortunately. For you, that is. Goads said this as cheerfully as an unsmiling man could. Cole wasn't giving up. Well, what proof do you have that the property would have been passed down through the family? This Charles Singleton could have sold it for $500 in 1870 and squandered the money away. We have evidence that he intended to keep the farm in his family. Rhyme turned to Geneva. What did Charles say? The girl didn't need to look at any notes. In a letter to his wife, he told her he never wanted to sell the farm. He said, I wish the land to pass intact to our son and his issue. Professions and trades ebb and flow. The financial markets are fickle, but the earth is God's great constant, and our farm will ultimately bring to our family respectability in the eyes of those who do not respect us now. It will be our children's salvation, and that of the generations that will follow. Enjoying his role as cheerleader, Rhyme said, just think of how a jury will react to that. Not a dry eye. Cole leaned forward, angrily, toward Goads. Oh, I know what's going on here. You're making it sound like she's a victim. But this is just blackmail, like all the rest of the slavery reparations bullshit, right? I'm sorry Charles Singleton was a slave. I'm sorry he or his father or whoever was brought here against his will. Cole waved his arm, as if shooing away a bee, and glanced at Geneva. Well, young lady, that was a long, long time ago. My great-grandfather died of black lung. You don't see me suing West Virginia coal and shale, looking for some easy money. You people have to get over it. Just get on with your lives. If you spend as much time... Hold up, Hanson snapped. Both he and his assistant glared at the lawyer. Cole licked his lips and then sat back. 
I'm sorry, I didn't mean it the way it sounded. I said, you people, but I didn't mean... He was looking at Wesley Goads, but it was Geneva who spoke. Mr. Cole, I feel the same way. Like, I really believe in what Frederick Douglass said. People might not get all they work for in this world, but they must certainly work for all they get. I don't want any easy money. The lawyer eyed her uncertainly. He looked down after a moment. Geneva did not. She continued. You know, I've been talking to my father about Charles. I found out some things about him, like his grandfather was kidnapped by slavers and taken away from his family in Yoruba land and sent to Virginia. Charles's father died when he was forty-two because his master thought it would be cheaper to buy a new, younger slave than to treat him for pneumonia. I found out that Charles's mother was sold to a plantation in Georgia when Charles was twelve and he never saw her again. But you know what? She asked calmly. I'm not asking for a penny because of those things. No, it's real simple. Something Charles loved was taken away from him. And I'll do whatever I have to to make sure the thief pays for that. Cole murmured another apology, but his legal genes wouldn't let him abdicate his client's cause. He glanced at Hanson, then continued, I appreciate what you're saying, and we'll offer a settlement based on Mr. Ashbury's actions, but as for the claim to the property, we can't go there. We don't even know that you have legal standing to bring the suit. What proof do you have that you're really Charles Singleton's descendant? Lincoln Rhyme eased his finger across the touchpad and steered his chair imposingly close to the table. Isn't it about time somebody here asked why I tagged along? Silence. I don't get out very much, as you can imagine. So what do you think brought me all these long blocks west? Lincoln chided Tom. All right, all right, I'll get to the point. Exhibit A. What exhibit? Cole asked. I'm being facetious. The letter. He glanced at Geneva. She opened her own backpack and took out a folder. She slipped a photocopy onto the desk. The Sanford side of the table looked it over. One of Singleton's letters? Hanson asked. Nice handwriting, Rhyme observed. That was important back then, not like nowadays, all this typing and careless jotting. All right, sorry, no more digressions. Here's the point. I had a colleague, fellow named Parker Kincaid, down in D.C. Compare that handwriting to all the existing samples of Charles Singleton's exemplars, including legal documents and archives down in Virginia. Parker's former FBI. He's the handwriting expert the experts go to when they have a questioned document. He's executed an affidavit stating that this is identical to the known samples of Singleton's handwriting. Okay. Cole conceded. It's his letter, so? Geneva, Rhyme said. What does Charles say? She nodded at the letter and recited, again from memory. And yet the source of my tears, the stains you see on this paper, my darling, are not from pain but from regret for the misery I have visited upon us. The original letter contains several stains, Rhyme explained. We analyzed them and found lysozyme, lipocalin, and lactoferrin, proteins, if you're interested, and assorted enzymes, lipids, and metabolites. Those, and water, of course, make up human tears.
By the way, did you know that the composition of tears differs significantly depending on whether they were shed in pain or because of emotion? These tears, a nod toward the document, were shed in emotion. I can prove that. I suspect the jury will find that fact moving, too. Cole sighed. You've run a DNA test on the stain, and it matches Miss Settle's DNA. Rhymes shrugged and muttered the byword for today. Obviously. Hansen looked at Cole, whose eyes slipped back and forth between the letter and his notes. The president said to Geneva, A million dollars. I'll write you a check right now for a million dollars. If you and your guardian sign a liability waiver. Goad said coolly, Miss Settle insists on seeking restitution in the amount of the actual damages, monies that all of Charles Singleton's heirs will share in, not just yourself. He leveled another gaze at the bank president. I'm sure you weren't suggesting that your payment would be for her alone, an incentive maybe to neglect to inform her relatives about what happened? No, no, of course not. Hansen said quickly, Let me talk to our board. We'll come up with a settlement figure. Goads gathered up the papers and stuffed them into his knapsack. I'm filing the complaint in two weeks. If you want to discuss voluntarily creating a trust fund for the claimants, you can call me here. He slid a card across the desk. When they were at the door, the bank's attorney, Cole, said, Geneva, wait, please. Look, I'm sorry about what I said before. Truly, it was inappropriate. I honestly feel bad for what happened to you and to your ancestor, and I do have your interest in mind here. Just remember that a settlement would be far and away the best thing for you and your relatives. Let your lawyer tell you how tough a trial like this would be, how long it could take, how expensive. He smiled. Trust me, we are on your side here. Geneva looked him over. Her reply was, The battles are the same as they've always been. It's just harder to recognize the enemy. She turned and continued out the door. The attorney clearly had no idea what she meant, which, Rhyme supposed, more or less proved her point. Chapter 44 Early Wednesday the autumn air cold and clear as fresh ice. Geneva had just visited her father at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital and was on her way to Langston Hughes High. She'd finished the paper on Home to Harlem. It turned out not to be such a bad book, though she'd still rather have written about Octavia Butler. Damn, that woman could write. And she was pretty pleased with her report. What was especially fat, though, was that Geneva had written it on a word processor, one of the Toshibas in Mr. Rhyme's lab, which Tom had showed her how to use. At school, the few computers that worked were so overbooked that you couldn't get more than fifteen minutes of time on one, let alone use it to write a whole paper. And to find facts or research, all she had to do was minimize WordPerfect and call up the Internet. A miracle. What would have otherwise taken her two days to write, she finished in mere hours. Crossing the street, she aimed for the shortcut through the schoolyard of P.S. 288 Elementary School, which took a few minutes off the trip from the 8th Avenue train station to Langston Hughes. The chain-link fence around the schoolyard cast a gridded shadow on the bleached gray asphalt.
The slim girl slipped easily through the gap in the gate, which had long ago been wedged open wide enough for a teenage boy and a basketball to pass through. The hour was early, the yard deserted. She was ten feet across the grounds when she heard a voice calling from the other side of the fence. Girlfriend, yo! She stopped. Lakeisha stood on the sidewalk, decked out in tight green stretch pants, a long orange blouse taut over her boobs, book bag dangling, bling and braids glistening in the sun. Her face had the same somber expression as when Geneva had seen her last week, when that whack bitch Fraser tried to kill her and her father. Hey, girl, where have you been? Keish looked doubtfully at the gap in the chain link. She'd never fit. Come on here. Meet me at school. No, I want to talk just us. Geneva debated. Her friend's face told her this was important. She slipped out through the gate and walked up to the big girl. They fell into a slow walk side by side. Where have you been, Keish? Geneva frowned. You cut class? Ain't feeling good. Monthlies? No, not that. My mom's sent a note. Lakeisha looked around. Who that old dude you with the other day? She opened her mouth to lie and instead said, My father? No. Word, Geneva said. He'd be living in Chicago or something, you telling me. My mom's lied. He was in the system. He got released a couple of months ago, came to find me. Where he at now? In the hospital. He got hurt. He down? Yeah, he'll be okay. And him and you? You fat? Maybe. Hardly know him. Damn, him showing up. Must have been freaky. You got that right, girl. Finally, the big girl slowed, then stopped. Geneva looked at her friend's evasive eyes and watched her hand disappearing into her purse, gripping something inside. A hesitation. What? Geneva asked. Here. The girl whispered fast, lifting her hand and thrusting it forward, in her fingers, which ended in black-and-white checkered acrylic nails, was a silver necklace, a heart on the end of a chain. That's, Geneva began, what you gave me last month for my birthday. You're giving it back? I can't keep it, Jen. You'll be needing Benjamin's anyway. You can hock it. Don't be whack, girl. Not like it came from Tiffany's. Tears were welling in the big girl's eyes, the prettiest part of her face. Her hand lowered. I'll be moving next week. Moving? Where? BK. Brooklyn? Your whole family? The twins? They ain't going. None of the family be going. The girl's eyes swept the sidewalk. What's this all about, Keish? I'm going to tell you something that happened. I'm not in the mood for drama, girl, Geneva snapped. What are you talking about? Kevin, Lakeisha continued in a soft voice. Kevin Cheney? Keish nodded. I'm sorry, girl. Me and him, we in love. He got this place he moving to. I'm going to go with him. Geneva, silent for a moment, then. Was he the one you were talking to when I called last week? She nodded. Listen, I didn't want it to happen, but it just did. You got to understand, we got this thing, him and me. It ain't like nothing I never felt. I know you want to be with him. You talking about him all the time, looking him over every day. You so happy that time he walked you home. I know all that, and still I done move in on you. Oh, girl, I've been worried steady, thinking about telling you. 
Geneva felt a chill in her soul, but it had nothing to do with her crush on Kevin, which had vanished the instant he showed his true self in math class. She asked, You're pregnant, aren't you? Wasn't feeling good. Keish lowered her head and stared at the dangling necklace. Geneva closed her eyes for a moment, then she asked, How far down? Two months? Hook yourself up with a doctor. We'll go to the clinic, you and me. I'll... Her friend frowned. Why I do that? It ain't like I laid no baby on him. He say he used protection if I say so, but he really want to have a baby with me. He say it'd be like part of both of us. It was a line, Keish. He's working you. Her friend glared. Oh, that cold. No, that's word, girl. He's been fronting. He's working some angle. Geneva wondered what he wanted from her. It wouldn't be grades, not in Keisha's case. Probably money. Everybody in school knew she worked hard at her two jobs and saved what she earned. Her parents had income, too. Her moms had worked for the Postal Service for years, and her father had a job at CBS and another one nights at the Sheraton Hotel. Her brother worked as well. Kevin had to have an eye on the whole family's Benjamins. You loan him any money? Geneva asked. Her friend looked down, said nothing, meaning yes. We had a deal, you and me. We were going to graduate, go to college. Lakeisha wiped tears from her round face with her round hand. Oh, Jen, you a trip. What planet you be living on? We talk, you and me, about college and fancy jobs, but for me it just talk. You write your papers like they nothing and take your tests and you'll be number one at everything. You know I ain't like that. You were going to be the successful one with your business. Remember, girl, I'd be a poor professor somewhere eating tuna out of a can and having Cheerios for dinner. You're the one going to kick ass. What about your store, your TV show, your club? Key shook her head, her braids dangling. Shit, girl, that's just claiming. I ain't going nowhere. Best I can hope for is what I do now, serving up salads and burgers at TGI Fridays. Or doing braids and extensions till they go out of style, which you ask me will be all of six months. Geneva gave a weak smile. We always said Froze would be coming back in. Keisha laughed. Weird. All you need for them is a pick and spray. Ain't no need for no fresh artist like me. She twined her own blonde extensions around her finger, then lowered her hands, her smile fading. By myself, I'll end up a played-out old bag. Only way I'ma get over is with a man. Now who's talking trash about herself, girl? Kevin's been feeding you crap. You never used to talk this way. He'd take care of me. He'd be looking steady for work, and he promised he'd help me take care of the baby. He's different. He's not like them other boys he hang with. Yes, he is. You can't give up, Keish. Don't do it. Stay in school, at least. You really want a baby, fine, but stay in school. You can... You ain't my mom's girl. Keish snapped. I know what I'm about. Anger flashed in the girl's eyes. All the more heartbreaking because it was the very same fury that had filled the girl's round face when she stepped up to protect Geneva from the Delano or St. Nicholas Project girls moving on her in the street. Get her down. Cut her. Cut the bitch. Then Keish added softly, What it is, girl, he's saying I can't hang with you no more. You can't, Kevin, say you treat him bad at school. Treated him bad? 
a cold laugh. He wanted me to help him cheat. I said no. I told him it was fucked up what he was saying, me and you being so tight and everything, but he wouldn't listen. He say, I can't see you none. So you're choosing him, Geneva said. I ain't got no choice. The big girl looked down. I can't take no present from you here. She thrust the necklace into Geneva's hand and released it fast as if she were letting go of a hot pan. It fell to the filthy sidewalk. Don't do it, Keish, please. Geneva reached for the girl, but her fingers closed on nothing but cool air. Chapter 45 Ten days after the meeting with Sanford Bank President Gregory Hansen and his lawyer, Lincoln Rhyme was having a phone conversation with Ron Pulaski, the young rookie who was on medical leave but expected to return to duty in a month or so. His memory was coming back, and he was helping them shore up the case against Thompson Boyd. "'So you're going to a Halloween party?' Pulaski asked, then paused and added a quick, "'Or whatever?' The last two words probably were meant to counteract any faux pas created by suggesting that a quadriplegic might attend parties. But Rhyme put him at ease by saying, I am, as a matter of fact, I'm going as Glenn Cunningham. Sack stifled a laugh. Really? the rookie asked. Um, who's that exactly? Why don't you look it up, patrolman? Yes, sir, I will. Rhyme disconnected and looked over the main evidence board, on the top of which was taped the twelfth card in the tarot deck, the hanged man. He was gazing at the card when the doorbell rang. Lon Solito, probably. He was due soon from a therapy session. He'd stopped rubbing the phantom bloodstain and practicing his Billy the Kid quick draw, which nobody had yet explained to Rhyme. He'd tried to ask Sachs about it, but she couldn't or wouldn't say much, which was fine. Sometimes, Lincoln Rhyme firmly believed, you just didn't need to know all the details. But his visitor at the moment, it turned out, wasn't the rumpled detective. Rhyme glanced into the doorway and saw Geneva Settle standing there, listing against her book bag. Welcome, he said. Sachs, too, said hello, pulling off the safety glasses she'd been wearing as she filled out chain-of-custody cards for blood samples she'd collected at a homicide crime scene that morning. Wesley Goads had all the paperwork ready to file in the lawsuit against Sanford Bank and reported to Geneva that she could expect a realistic offer from Hansen by Monday. If not, the legal cruise missile had warned his opponents that he would file suit the next day. A press conference would accompany the event. Goads's opinion was that the bad publicity would last considerably longer than an ugly ten minutes. Rhyme looked the girl over. Unseasonably warm weather made gangster sweats and stocking caps impractical, so she was in blue jeans and a sleeveless T-shirt with guess in glittery letters across the chest. She'd gained a little weight. Her hair was longer. She even had some makeup on. Rhyme had wondered what was in the bag that Tom had mysteriously slipped her the other day. The girl looked good. Geneva's life had achieved a certain stability. Jax Jackson had been released from the hospital, and was undergoing physical therapy. Thanks to some prodding by Salito, the man had been officially transferred to the care and feeding of the New York City parole authorities. Geneva was living in his minuscule apartment in Harlem, an arrangement that was not as dire as she'd anticipated. The girl had confessed this not to Rhyme or Roland Bell, but to Tom, 
who'd become a mother hen to the girl and invited her to the townhouse regularly to give her cooking lessons, watch TV, and argue books and politics, none of which Rhyme had any interest in. As soon as they could afford a bigger place, she and her father were going to have Aunt Lily move in with him. The girl had given up her job slinging McHash and was now employed after school by Wesley Goads as a legal researcher and gopher. She was also helping him set up the Charles Singleton Trust, which would disperse the settlement money to the freedmen's heirs. Geneva's interest in fleeing the city at the earliest opportunity for a life in London or Rome hadn't flagged, but the cases that Rhyme overheard her passionately talking about all seemed to involve Harlem residents who'd been discriminated against because they were black, Latino, Islamic, women, or poor. Geneva was also engaged in some project she referred to as saving her girlfriend, which she didn't go into with him either. Her advisor for this particular endeavor seemed to be Amelia Sachs. I wanted to show you something. The girl held up a piece of yellowing paper containing several paragraphs of handwriting that Rhyme immediately recognized as Charles Singleton's. Another letter? Sachs asked. Geneva nodded. She was handling the paper very carefully. Aunt Lily heard from that relative of ours in Madison. He sent us a few things he found in his basement. A bookmark of Charles's, a pair of his glasses, and a dozen letters. This is the one I wanted to show you. With beaming eyes, Geneva added, It was written in 1875, after he got out of prison. Let's see it, Rhyme said. Sachs mounted it on the scanner, and a moment later the image appeared on several computer monitors around the lab. Sachs stepped next to Rhyme, put her arm around his shoulder. They looked at the screen. My most darling Violet, I trust you have been enjoying your sister's company, and that Joshua and Elizabeth are pleased to spend time with their cousins. That Frederick, who was only nine when I saw him last, is as tall as his father, is a fact I find hard to grasp. All is well at our cottage. I am pleased to report. James and I cut ice on the shore of the river all morning, and stocked the ice house, then covered the blocks in sawdust. We then traveled some two miles north through substantial snow to view the orchard that is offered for sale. The price is dear, but I believe the seller will respond favorably to my counteroffer. He was clearly in doubt about selling to a negro, but when I revealed that I could pay him in greenbacks and would not need to offer a note, his concerns appeared to vanish. Hard cash is a great equalizer. Were you not as moved as I to read that yesterday our country enacted a civil rights act? Did you see the particulars? The law guarantees to everyone of any color equal enjoyment of all inns, public conveyances, theaters, and the like. What a momentous day for our cause. This is the very legislation about which I corresponded with Charles Sumner and Benjamin Butler at length last year, and I believe that some of my ideas made their way into this important document. As you can well imagine, this news gave me cause for reflection, thinking back to those terrible events of seven years past, being robbed of our orchard in Gallows Heights and jailed in pitiful conditions. And yet now, reflecting upon this news from Washington, D.C., as I sit before the fire in our cottage, I feel that those terrible events are from a different world entirely. 
in much the same way as those hours of bloody combat in the war or the hard years of forced servitude in Virginia are forever present, but somehow as removed as the muddled images from an ill-remembered nightmare. Perhaps within our hearts is a single repository for both despair and hope, and filling that space with one drives out all but the most shadowy memory of the other. And tonight I am filled only with hope. You will recall that for years I vowed that I would do whatever I might to cast off the stigma of being regarded as a three-fifths man. When I consider the looks I still receive because of my color and the actions of others toward me and our people, I think I am not yet regarded as completely whole. But I would venture to say that we have progressed to the point where I am viewed as a nine-tenths man. James laughed heartily when I told him this over supper tonight. And I continue to have faith that we will come to be seen as whole within our lifetimes, or in Joshua's and Elizabeth's, at least. Now, my dearest, I must say good night to you, and prepare a lesson for my students tomorrow. Sweet dreams to you and our children, my darling. I live for your return. Your faithful Charles, Croton on the Hudson, March 2, 1875. Rhymes said, It sounds like Douglas and the others forgave him for the robbery, or decided to believe that he didn't do it. Sachs asked, What was that law he was talking about? The Civil Rights Act of 1875, Geneva said. It prohibited racial discrimination by hotels, restaurants, trains, theaters, any public place. The girl shook her head. It didn't last, though. The Supreme Court struck it down in the 1880s as unconstitutional. There wasn't a single piece of federal civil rights legislation enacted after that for over fifty years. Sachs mused. I wonder if Charles lived long enough to hear it was struck down. He wouldn't have liked that. Shrugging, Geneva replied, I don't think it would have mattered. He'd think of it as just a temporary setback. The hope pushing out the pain, Rhyme said. That's a word, Geneva said. Then she looked at her battered swatch. I've got to get back to work. That Wesley goads. I've got to say the man is whack. He never smiles, never looks at you. And come on, you can trim a beard sometimes, you know. Lying in bed that night, the room dark, Rhyme and Sachs were watching the moon, a crescent so thin that by rights it should have been cold white, but through some malady of atmosphere was as golden as the sun. Sometimes, at moments like this, they talked, sometimes not. Tonight they were silent. There was a slight movement on the ledge outside the window, from the peregrine falcons that nested there, a male and female and two fledglings. Occasionally, a visitor to Rhymes would look at the nest and ask if they had names. "'We have a deal,' he'd mutter. "'They don't name me, I don't name them. It works.' A falcon's head rose and looked sideways, cutting through their view of the moon. The bird's movement and profile suggested for some reason wisdom. Danger, too. 
Adult peregrines have no natural predators and attack their prey from above at speeds up to 170 miles an hour. But now the bird hunkered down benignly and went still. The creatures were diurnal and slept at night. Thinking? Sachs asked. Let's go hear some music tomorrow. There's a matinee or whatever you call an afternoon concert at Lincoln Center. Who's playing? The Beatles, I think. Or Elton John and Maria Callas doing duets. I don't care. I really just want to embarrass people by wheeling toward them. My point is that it doesn't matter who's playing. I want to get out. That doesn't happen very often, you know. I know. Sachs leaned up and kissed him. Sure. Let's. He twisted his head and touched his lips to her hair. She settled down against him. Rhyme closed his fingers around her hand and squeezed hard. She squeezed back. You know what we could do? Sachs asked, a hint of conspiracy in her voice. Let's sneak in some wine and lunch. Pâté and cheese, French bread. You can buy food there. I remember that, but the scotch is terrible, and it costs a fortune. What we could do is rhyme. Sack sat straight up in bed, gasping. What's wrong? he asked. What did you just do? I'm agreeing that we smuggled some food into— Don't play around! Sachs was fumbling for the light, clicked it on. In her black silk boxers and gray T-shirt, hair askew and eyes wide, she looked like a college girl who just remembered she had an exam at eight tomorrow morning. Rhyme squinted as he looked at the light. That's awfully bright, is it necessary? She was staring down at the bed. Your, your hand. You moved it. I guess I did. Your right hand. You've never had any movement in your right hand. Funny, isn't it? You've been putting off the test, but you've known all along you could do that? I didn't know I could. Until now. I wasn't going to try. I was afraid it wouldn't work. So I was going to give up all the exercise, just stop worrying about it. He shrugged. But I changed my mind. I wanted to give it a shot. But just us. No machines or doctors around. Not by myself, he added, though silently. And you didn't tell me. She slapped him on the arm. I didn't feel that. They laughed. It's amazing, Rhyme. She whispered and hugged him hard. You did it. You really did it. I'll try it again. Rhyme looked at Sachs, then at his hand. He paused a moment, then sent a burst of energy from his mind streaking through the nerves to his right hand. Each finger twitched a little. And then, as ungainly as a newborn colt, his hand swiveled across a two-inch grand canyon of blanket and seated itself firmly against Sachs's wrist. He closed his thumb and index finger around it. Tears in her eyes, she laughed with delight. How about that? he said. So you'll keep up with the exercises? He nodded. We'll set up the test with Dr. Sherman? she asked. I suppose we could. Unless something else comes up. Been a busy time lately. We'll set up the test, she said firmly. She shut the light out and lay close to him, which he could sense, though not feel. In silence, Rhyme stared at the ceiling. 
Just as Saxe's breathing stilled, he frowned, aware of an odd sensation trickling through his chest where there ought to be none. At first he thought it was phantom. Then, alarmed, he wondered if it was perhaps the start of an attack of dysreflexia, or worse. But he realized that, no, this was something else entirely, something not rooted in nerve or muscle or organ. A scientist always, he analyzed the sensation empirically and noted that it was similar to what he'd felt watching Geneva Settle face down the bank's attorney. Similar, too, to when he was reading about Charles Singleton's mission to find justice at the Potter's Field Tavern that terrible night in July so many years ago, or about his passion for civil rights. Then, suddenly, Rhyme understood what he was feeling. It was simple pride. Just like he'd been proud of Geneva and of her ancestor, he was proud of his own accomplishment. By tackling his exercises and then 